Hello, welcome back to episode 73. In today's episode, I have with uh, me Kip Warner. Now, Kip is part of a group called the Canadian Society for the Advancement of Science in Public Policy, and they are involved in a lawsuit against the province of British Columbia in the Supreme Court uh, regarding the position and restrictions uh, that the government is taking regarding uh, the COVID, which people like Kip or myself do not agree with, and there's a lot more of us than people realize. Now, just a quick disclaimer, uh, neither of us are actually lawyers, and the opinions of Kip do not represent mine, and my opinions do not represent his or uh, the Canadian Society for the Advancement of Science in Public Policy. Now, I have to just put that out there as a precautionary measure, um, because there is an ongoing uh, lawsuit going on, and uh, we do talk about it a bit at the beginning, but because it's ongoing, we can't uh, go too in-depth as it might cause problems for the lawsuit. Uh, I'm sure once it's all done and uh, uh, moved forward and th- this whole COVID nonsense is behind us, then we I can sit down with Kip again and we can deconstruct it a little bit. Now, though Kip... Uh, is ex-military, is a veteran of the Canadian military, and he did some martial arts uh, in the form of mostly uh, saber and uh, rapier, uh, sword, mar- you know, sword traditional sword styles of French and uh, European descent. Uh, that's the reason I have him on. Is, is, is you know, warriors. Then what is a warrior? Uh, other than the obvious that I stated already, is a warrior is someone who doesn't want to fight but will if they have to. And I, I, I have been frustrated that not enough people have wanted to stand up and say no to the, the, the kind of behavior that governments are uh, doing globally. Uh, now, I think, you know, as a Jew, the, I've been debating one way or another, like the comparison to the Holocaust is definitely extreme. And I think the uh, constant calling of people as Nazis is inappropriate. Uh, unless you're committing genocide, let's say like certain superpowers right now, uh, you should not be compared to that as far as you... They're not Hitler. I, I've been reframing this as the best thing to do is say authoritarian. Authoritarians moving in, in the direction of dictatorships. And, and that's just a more generic term because the lockdowns, for example, uh, and strict, harsh policies are coming from governments of left political spectrum and right political spectrum. And rather than trying to explain to people fascism, communism, socialism, and the various forums, dictator is a dictator. And authoritarian behavior is authoritarian behavior. Regardless, uh, I feel uh, that governments globally are looking at every problem as a nail and all they have is a hammer. And that's it. And Kip and his cohorts and people like myself do not believe they're making these decisions from a reasonable scientific basis, more so as a control, top-down control methodology to avoid chaos and uh, because fear and misinformation uh, rules all. And the public on the internet that has now become bully culture or fear-based is, uh, it's, it seems politicians make the mistake of seeming like that loud 10% of people represent the majority 
and, and you know, a lot of people said, oh, the silent majority is a myth, but I don't believe that. I, I just think the average person just wants to live their damn life. And I, I think if you're one of those people who's been living in fear at home, yelling at other people, uh, I want to get back to my life. It's the same actual logic as the people who have actually just been living their life this entire time, in all actuality, um, because uh, either way, either group wants to live their life and be left alone. My stance as someone who teaches self-defense is stop being bullies, be honest, and I, uh, we talk about it, but... Uh, again, we have to be careful what we say. Uh, the dishonesty of politicians, the dishonesty of policy, the fact that they will never admit when they make mistakes and just move forward when they get something right. but uh, and, and they'll hide behind science is an evolving process that is correct. Um, but when you have to make policy based on the available science, yes, policy will change. But then when people point out, rightfully so, that you you're wrong based on the evidence and you dig your heels in and refuse to change because you're already set something in motion and by changing it you'll have to admit you got so much wrong uh an example a, a friend of mine that i trust right very much was telling me that one of their friends is a virologist He's like you know we basically have group immunity in large swaths of the population yes i know there's a new variant but uh, you need to allow the group immunity to kick in again. And considering the vulnerable have essentially been vaccinated again, the infection rate numbers are not irrelevant, but less important than they keep talking about. Uh, and I bring it up in the fact that governments have basically n loosely acknowledged just now, but barely talked about health and wellness as a means of preventing severe COVID complications and death, uh, avoided talking about vitamin D deficiency, which was basically discovered early on, is disgraceful. And they're not being scientific, and they're not being honest, and they're just pandering to the loud mob on the internet that is terrified because of the fear that they created, and to the scientists out there that uh, don't agree with the lockdowns. There's a lot of you. Speak up. Because if you want to maintain the integrity of, of science, and we do talk about um, uh, scientific illiteracy being a problem on both sides of the political spectrum, um, but the issue is, is, is that you need to speak up because if you don't and you sit there quietly and just take it up the ass of everyone shouting at science and saying, how dare you, and disbelieving it, which I'm against, believe properly, um, you need... To stand up because you're only going to give science a black eye because the more you allow politicians to bastardize it, lie, and misrepresent, the more large groups of people are going to be distrustful of you. And that is a bad thing. Now, uh, I think before I continue I uh, with this intro, which is already long, sorry, it's an important topic, I'm going to have to say, brought to you by, this podcast is brought to you by Urban Tactics. Krav Magab, turning lambs into lions since 2013. We are Metro Vancouver's uh, premier Krav Maga self-defense destination, and we have been heavily impacted by these insane, uh, draconian, silly lockdown procedures. I'll, I will be fair, they're not as bad in BC where we are as other places like Ontario or Quebec, which have gone full-bore uh, authoritarian. But 
ways you can support us. Of course, you can check out our blog, utcamblog.com. Uh, and right now we're running a series of blog posts every week written by our assistant instructor, Petra, who grew up on the side of the, uh, on the east, in East Germany, before and after the fall of Berlin Wall. And she, and like many who came from countries like that, are feeling the pressure of government starting to ignore populace uh, and just go full authoritarian. And we are currently on uh, the second of the five-part series, uh, our education, so you can check out our blog and, and listen to somebody who grew up in an authoritarian uh, culture where uh, they misrepresented stuff. You can, of course, hit the support us on the UTKM blog uh, uh, website and ways you can support us uh, so that I can survive and UTKM survive during this time. Of course, do so for all small businesses struggling uh, on the support us tab. Uh, you can make a simple donation of whatever you want, which is always great. We're not uh, not for profit, just so you know, but we like your support. Of course, I understand that most people don't want to do that, so you can always support us in another way. You can go to www.utcamu.com, and you can learn Krav Maga online until such a time we can take new students for regular training. Although I do take privates right now, but the timing is limited. Um, UTKMU is our entire beginner and novice curriculum and eventually the advanced curriculum as we teach it uh, at UTKMU. So uh, at UTKM, Urban Tactics Krav Maga. So if you just want to uh, see how we do it, you can see it there. Uh, the only thing really special is just the about us versus other Krav Maga. It's just the structure of our curriculum. And uh, I think the fact that I really emphasize critical thinking and that uh, self-defense is more than just physical. You can also support us by going to affiliate links. I have a few affiliate links, uh, coffee I drink and some uh, supplements I drink, Amazon affiliate links, and a bunch of book recommendations I have up there. I'll probably add more. Uh, you can support us by using those affiliate links. Again, those are under utcamblog.com forward slash support us, or you can just go to utcamblog.com and hit support us. And of course, if you do want to train with us when these authoritarians uh, go away with their nonsense, because you know healthy people under 40 are not likely to die. Uh, so those who do martial arts and who keep in good shape are not likely to have problems unless they had undiagnosed uh, pre-existing conditions that they were unaware of because of the triage nature of our medical system, which I am not impressed with. Dr. Bonnie Henry, our medical system is mediocre at best from personal experiences. Um, you know, most healthy young people under 40 should have never had major restrictions. You know, minor restrictions, uh, a little bit is okay, but staying health and wellness uh, like is crucial. And closing gyms and closing fitness centers and martial arts is insane because these are the people who are most likely to survive even if they get it. I just tell people, hey, uh, don't go around any vulnerable people. That's real, really simple. Sorry, that's just practical, practical, safe advice to give people. But anyways, so you can support us like that. Uh, and when we are able to open up, as I was saying, you can go to urbantacticskm.com and sign up for a class when we can take new students. Uh, as I'm recording this, I cannot. Uh, of course, you can do private lessons. I encourage in uh, households or cohorts so that you can practice with each other. It's a much better experience. Uh, so that was urbantacticscam.com for our regular training when, again, things are appropriately opened up. 
you authoritarian goons. And uh, you can follow us on uh, uh, social media. Sorry. Uh, Urban Tactics Kamaga on Instagram. Urban Tactics KM on Twitter, though I don't really use it anymore because, again, those authoritarian censorship of Twitter I don't really support. And do I have anything else? I feel like I'm missing one. But the main one I'm using mostly is Facebook. Oh, yeah, Facebook, Urban Tactics Kramaga on Facebook and Instagram. So check us out there. So a little back to uh, I want to read something from uh, someone I mentioned to uh, Kip was Naval Ramakant. I just want to uh, read something he uh, put together a little while ago. Oh, yeah, and if for those who don't know, Naval Ramakant is... Uh, sort of a, a guru to Silicon Valley, and he kind of like helps people uh, get through things. He's a brilliant human being. So he, he put this together. It says, believe in science is an oxymoron. And this is an excerpt from uh, sort of his Twitter podcast, whatever you want to call it, he does. So Naval is welcoming Brett to the uh, eponymous Naval podcast, the topic that we started out on was the timeless principles of wealth creation, and then we touched a little bit on internal happiness and peace and well-being. See, he's well-rounded. Uh, this is Naval. I am first and foremost a student of science. I'm a failed physicist in the sense that I loved physics. I wanted to pursue it, but I never felt I was going to be great at it. I was more pulled into technology, which is applied science. Nevertheless, I remain a student of science, and I remain fascinated by it. All of my real heroes are scientists, because I believe science is the engine that pulls humanity forward. We're lucky to live in an age when scientific and technological progress seems not likely, but inevitable. We've gotten used to the idea that life always gets better. Despite all the complaining about how productivity growth is stagnant, the reality is anyone who owns a smartphone or drives a car or even lives in a house has seen technology improve their quality of life over and over again. We take this process for granted, and it's thanks to science. To me, science is also the study of truth. What do we know about to be true? How do we know something to be true? As I get older, I find myself incapable of having an attention span for anything that isn't steeped in the truth. The background on this particular podcast series is that I thought I knew a lot about science, and there was a lot about science that I took for granted, such as what a scientific theory is and how scientific theories are formed. Most of us have a vague idea of it. Some of us think science is what scientists do, which has definitional problem. What is a scientist? Other people think science is making falsifiable or testable predictions, and maybe that's closer to it. Sometimes people say it's scientific method. And what is scientific method? And then they start describing their junior high school chemistry experiment and lose the trail after that. Especially these days when we're told believe in science, which is an oxymoron. People respect science, but they don't understand what science is. The idea of what science is gets hijacked sometimes by well-meaning people who want to convince you of the science and sometimes by not-so-well-meaning people who want to influence the way that you think, feel, and act. Again, Naval Ramakam. I thought this was brilliant because the first half is dealing with people who uh, deny science and its, its help on humanity. And the second half is dealing with those who I would say belong to the cult of science. Believe in science for the sake of science. Trust me, I'm a scientist. I have a doctorate. 
No, you're humans and humans. To be human is to err or make mistakes. And you have egos and you have bills to pay and you have uh, people who uh, twist your science. The media politicians always twist the actual science. Um, so be honest, politicians. Be honest, scientists. Simply being a scientist does not mean you are practicing good science. It really doesn't. And simply not believing in the science or not understanding the science doesn't mean it does not exist. So I think that's a good place to go again uh, and move into the podcast. We start with the lawsuit again, unfortunately, because it's an active lawsuit. We could not get into it as much as I had wanted to. And Kip did, did let me know before we started the podcast. And then we start talking about science, energy, uh, him being a vegan, uh, martial arts, uh, military experiences. Um, and, and, and again, my goal was to say, who is Kip? Kip is not just some crazy right winger as, uh, some local media rags have tried to paint him as that is not true he's an open-minded individual uh who is just against authoritarian uh governments and blind faith in their decision making along with many of us so here is episode 73 with kip warner krav maga is not just a self-defense system it is a way of life warriors den is a podcast for kravists Fighters, martial artists, warriors, politicians, and general citizens. Consider this. The society that separates scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. Lucididi, your host, Jonathan Fader, talks to guests in an open and uncensored format about their fights, their philosophies, and their lives. No topic is taboo, and the conversation may start in one place and end in another. As the quote suggests, you cannot separate the warrior from the politics and the world around them, as a true warrior must be a student in all forms of art and science. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Warrior's Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. Okay, so I am here with Kip Warner, Executive Director of Canadian Society for the Advancement of Science in Public Policy. Now, normally I start with martial arts background, but given timing of everything, we're going to jump right into uh, CSAP's uh, lawsuit against the provincial government in British Columbia, specifically to do with COVID policy. Now, I think it'd be good to set up, Kip, what is the Canadian Society for the Advancement of Science in Public Policy? And... Why did you decide to sue the government? <laughs> sure. So uh, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan, uh, incorporated society here in, under the laws of British Columbia. And we were created specifically to advocate for uh, uh, people who are adversely affected by these lockdown measures. And uh, the primary tool that we're using is the court system, mm -hmm. the time being. And uh, it was created in response to uh, a popular request from, from the community. Um, there were a lot of people who were asking me to do something. And uh, there was a lot of confusion about what should be done. And I think that our approach is not the only thing that needs to be done. People should be protesting out on the street. 
uh, it should be as many peaceful demonstrations as possible. Um, but we also needed uh, a, a redress to the courts because ultimately a court order is the only thing that is actually going to, um, I think, achieve any headway for people. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's actually funny. I, I found you originally um, through someone sent it. I said I might be interested because I'm in the martial arts fitness community. And I was telling people, hey, we need to get together as a community and do something about this. And I found in general, um, people don't like to stick their heads up because, you know, the, the nail that uh, sticks out gets hammered. And, and the general idea was I don't want to draw attention to my business. As you see, there's the two restaurants in Vancouver right now that are getting hammered um, because they've said no. And that's sort of the attitude. I think a lot of people just don't want to do that. So is is it just because like people were asking you or you just it the this uh csap just doesn't agree with the policy from a scientific basis uh, in both um but the csap exists as sort of a, a a legal entity to organize these efforts under at least the way we want to do it which is through through a uh, court challenge um but you are right that a lot of people don't want to stick their neck out uh, I've organized my life in such a way that that uh, I'm much less dependent on what other people think about yeah. what I do. True freedom. Really. <laughs> so I learned a long time ago that any other arrangement is just going to end in, in misery and depression. So uh, you should mitigate that as, as early on as you can in life. Um, but yeah, the, the, the problem with people being afraid is, is a big one. Uh, that, that's understandable. I think the thing that I find more frustrating is uh, I don't understand why it's so difficult for people to say that they're afraid. Um, I mean, our, our society doesn't really put a whole lot of emphasis on courage. So I don't see why uh, people should be so concerned about uh, maybe being branded coward. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, it, it just bothers me because it, the thing with, with cowardice is that it, it always masquerades under the banner of prudence. You'll never hear anyone say that I was afraid to do the right thing. Yeah. It's always, I was, you know, buying my time or just wasn't the right thing at that, that moment, or I was being clever about it, but they'll never say I was afraid, you yeah. know, like it, it, it's, a, it's, they always got to rationalize it. And to me, it's just like, I, I don't see how that gets you anywhere. Like you, yeah. you're, <laughs> you know you're a frog in a pot and, and uh the water may not be boiling now but you can see where it's going if you yeah. if you don't do anything so yeah it makes sense and in, like in my community i can like i know for a fact that mo a large percentage of the community does not support the government like, yeah. a lot uh and you know for uh, in our specific industry uh you know i i wrote some articles on my blog really early on again i'm not a lawyer i'm not a, a expert as you can say uh, the one thing that i think that attitude uh, appeal the authority the attitude is, is wrong with the, uh, the internet because if you have to do your research you can access uh, first source for sources and you know i found within a few months of covid you know obesity was an issue low vitamin d was an issue and if you look into the literature, the literature that supports these, supports these things, things, the governments globally basically barely said anything as this is a preventative measure. And, you know, from a scientific perspective and a health perspective, this is what I look at uh, with governments. 
whether they're intentionally lying or not, I don't think they're being uh, genuine and they are pushing fear rather than honesty, you know, on, on the, the science aspect of their claims, you know. It's an effective tool of administering the public. Anyone who studied even a little bit of history knows that um, people ordinarily will not be willing to make certain concessions unless uh, they feel that there's an emergency. So as a general rule of thumb, when you're on the ferry going over to the island, uh, nobody races for the life jackets and jumps overboard. Yeah. Unless you told them that there was a fire and the ship was sinking or something, then people might feel more inclined to do that. Uh, but otherwise, unless there there is some uh, uh, some basis for for fear, real or or merely perceived, uh, people will not, as a general rule, be willing to make certain concessions. And so that's why it's so imperative that that uh, people are made afraid. And it's the same recipe that's been used in. in, in uh, many different countries uh, around the world uh, throughout history yeah yeah you know actually right now i'm releasing um well i i didn't write it one of my students wrote it she actually grew up in east germany uh, before the fall of the berlin wall and uh, after and she's she's starting to feel like a lot of people who grew up in communist socialists or authoritarian i've actually stopped using communist I, I should say authoritarian countries it's a better blanket term i think and she and many others like her are starting to feel in, in North America and westernized countries that the government's strategies are mirroring that of uh, historically authoritarian company, uh, countries. And it's, it's starting to worry a lot of people. And, you know, unfortunately, as you know, you get labeled a conspiracy theory theorist if you start uh, pointing out the similarities in this behavior. What do you think of that? Yeah, I don't think it's it's necessary that they all need to, need to be reading from the same playbook, but there's certain patterns, certainly in history, and you can see that uh, different political administrations um, will do the, the similar things because they achieve uh, uh, the same ends that they all desire, which can, can often be uh, the longevity of their administrations. Yeah. And, uh, prolonging their powers as well, right? Increasing from what they would normally have. And that's one of the things that emergency do, uh, does is it enables extraordinary executive powers that it would otherwise not have had. Yeah, and I guess that's the question is uh, executive powers for the purpose of emergency, like what what's the limit? And, uh, you know, I think when I was telling people the importance of such a lawsuit is, is to set precedents to establish what governments can and cannot do and what justifications they need to enact such restrictions. And, and most people just look at you and they're just like, I don't understand any of that. I just, I just want my business to function. And we're on a slippery slope, I think, um, that governments are just taking an inch and then another inch and then another inch with no regard for the other half of the country or the other half of the voters that's saying, no, I, I don't agree with that. Um, and I think it's really important that you have these lawsuits and people willing to stand up and say no, whether or not, you know, it goes the way you want it to, which we'll see because <laughs> it is an act. Yeah, for sure. I mean, ours is a bit different than, than the others here in BC in that Ours is a class action. So as yeah. far as I know, ours is the only class action in BC um, that uh, deals with these measures. Um, and 
more importantly, like our strategy is very different. So without uh, getting too much into that, um, one thing that's a matter of public record is our, our filed pleadings and people can see what we're claiming. Um, some of the other challenges that we've seen uh, by other special interest groups, whether it's uh, uh, religious institutions or uh, uh, pubs or people who feel that they, they um, have uh, uh, received compensation from their insurers or whatever, that all of these different challenges all uh, presuppose the same fundamental uh, premise, which is that there is an emergency. So for instance, the churches, um, they brought a challenge here to the JCCF and I support their work, a good working relationship with them. But I did recommend uh, early on to their lawyers that their strategy, uh, I suspected was unlikely to succeed. Yeah. And what they were doing and others were doing, they're not, it's not just them, was basically the argument reduced down to, uh, we go to church, you know, we spread out, we wash our hands, we're not making things worse, so just let us go about our lives. And the problem with that is that even if you succeed in convincing a judge of that, you're still leaving your adversary with the emergency card. It's okay, so maybe you get to go to church, but then you're screwed over in every other aspect of your life because they still have the emergency card. Um, that, and so what you need to do is you need to pull the rug out from under them and show that there was never an emergency to be in with. You have to engage the premise, which is what I've been saying since the beginning. Because if, if, you, if you don't engage the premise and you presuppose that there is an emergency, whether explicitly or implicitly, just by not challenging it, uh, you end up in, in these these pointless academic discussions about uh, among lawyers and, and, and the court about whether the, the state really has these extraordinary executive powers, what are the limitations of it. And the, the punchline is that most likely they do. They do have these extraordinary powers, uh, provided there's an emergency. Um, if there's not an emergency, then then the question of how far those powers should extend becomes moot. So that's why I picked early on in, in contemplating litigation strategy that you had to engage the premise. There wasn't an emergency. So how do you do that? Well, uh, how do we know there's an emergency? Well, because there's a pandemic. How do we know there's a pandemic? Well, because there's so many cases. How do we know there's so many cases? Because there's been so many PCR tests with positive test results. Okay, that's the problem right there. We know that that's not a reliable tool. Uh, we, I think all of your listeners know by now uh, uh, about the inventor's disposition um, to that, to that uh, tool. Um, so that right there, you don't need to deal with anything else. You don't, we know the Crown has extraordinary executive powers. <laughs> I mean, the British Empire was built on, on that ability. Um, so that was our strategy and thus far it seems to be gaining a lot of traction more and more people are coming out was I think the problem was that a, a lot of other lawyers were concerned that that, that was the extremist or something they didn't really want to rock the boat um, but that's not their responsibility to avoid rocking the boat they're supposed to advocate for their client you're not supposed to be advocating for themselves unfortunately that's usually what lawyers do is they're not really there to represent the client they're there to represent themselves if you have experience uh, litigating, you know you, you have some knowledge of the civil procedures. You'll quickly be.
be able to do sort of about the soul biopsy of these people and figure out how they work. And, and that's really important because if you don't know how to manage a lawyer, um, you will find yourself in trouble. I have to do this regularly for stuff that's not even to do with litigation, just you know, dealing with um, you know, patents or technology related stuff, contracting in my industry, which is, is very common. Uh, lawyers, they go to law school to learn how to be your lawyer in theory. Um, but clients don't get any training on how to manage a lawyer. Yeah. So that's something that you have to learn. Otherwise, uh, you will eventually get taken advantage of because they're not there. As I said, this is a kind of a golden rule uh, of lawyers is that the lawyer is not there to represent the client. They're there to represent themselves, irrespective of what the law society uh, rules of professional conduct say, regardless of what they tell you on the phone. That's just how it works. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny you actually bring that up because there is, I was listening to a podcast with the now former dean of Harvard Law, who uh, often takes on difficult cases because he said, what's the point of having the rule of law if someone doesn't have good representation? And he uh, chose to take on the Harvey Weinstein case. And as a subsequent result, Harvard forced him out by not renewing his contract. Because yes. they didn't like that. And he said, I mean, essentially, I mean, the, the paraphrase is saying you're being unethical to Harvard and to any lawyer who disagreed with his, uh, you know, we, I think we can all agree Harvey Weinstein was not a great person, but that's not the job of the lawyer, right? He's supposed to represent the client to the best of their ability, as you said. But that's not the case with so many lawyers because otherwise other lawyers would have taken that case, right? So I think, yes. I think it's, uh, it's uh, often the way I look at this is, is there's the way things the are way supposed things to work, work and there's the way things, the way things do, work. do work. And often people don't like to, there's, there's a difference. <laughs> Correct. And you have to design your plan around how things actually work, not what's written on paper, what you're told. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and it's like, you know, the two restaurants that are taking immense heat right now for for uh, staying open during this time is interesting because you have various levels of government, whether provincial or um, city, all kind of arguing, do we have the authority? Do we not have the authority? Um, and in these immense times, I think that, like, clarity of the rules is or lack thereof is one of the reasons why I think people are so annoyed because you got some people saying, how dare you stay open? Uh, you have the authority to close them. And then you have other people trying to play the gray saying, well, we don't really know. Cause in the end of the day at all levels of government uh, and then the private to be, to be fair, nobody wants to take responsibility. <laughs> no, don't want to just do. And, and so I, th I think that, if we're going to enjoy any success at all in the court system, it, you have to frame the question properly, which is not uh, whether the state has the authority to do the things it's doing, but whether it had a basis to exercise that authority. Yeah. Because yeah. They, they have the authority. Yeah. They definitely yeah. have the authority. We're, we're seeing that now, right? And. Um, if you can establish that there was never an emergency to begin with, then all the other discussions become moot. Yeah, which is yeah, completely sense. understandable. Minimum uh, energy trajectory. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Now, I mean, without saying too much, it's hard because by the defini definition of a pandemic, this is a pandemic. 
So the question would then be, what kind of pandemic defines an emergency? Because if I wanted to, I could say in North America, we have an obesity pandemic and nobody's doing much about that. <laughs> it's like, no, and, and it's true. I mean, that's, that's not even a secret. I mean, even, uh, the Department of Defense is, is very senior uh, officials have put out statements it's exactly to that effect. They, they say this is a national security uh, uh, emergency. I mean, they say that about everything in the states, but this is what actually is. We've yeah. Got, yeah. You know, over 40 million people in the states that can, can barely uh, fit through a car door. Yeah. Have yeah. A, a problem, right? Yeah. And just to clarify, you, you, meant, you mean the U.S., not Canada, right? The department. Yes, in the states. Yeah. In Canada, uh, I don't think they've they've realized that the obesity, and they they have, but uh, they don't really see the connection. I think between what they're feeding the soldiers and why they're large. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's you funny know, you mentioned that because when I was in the IDF uh, on the counterterrorism base, they had Marines and other. Uh, U.S. soldiers cycling through, and what we ate and what they ate was very different. They got so much food, so much protein compared to what we were eating that they were paying for it. That was the Israelis. Well, they they pay more money, but it's like, geez, you know, I thought the stereotype of like the big big dumb marine was was just that a stereotype? And they're not dumb, but they they were all giant. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah, no, I, I remember when I went through basic. Um, in can, Canadian military, just to clarify. Canadian military, yeah. Uh, it, my first course with the, the Army, I remember uh, it was known that I, I was vegan, and uh, we had uh, field rations that were issued yeah. in, uh, in the Armory before we were about to go out somewhere, I remember. And these these field rations called MREs, meals ready to eat, uh, they had a so-called vegan one uh, or vegetarian, I think was the closest thing they, yeah. they had. And I knew I wasn't going to eat it, but I wanted to know. I was curious because these were U.S. military issues. I was curious, like, what, do, what is their concept of vegetarian? What do they think a vegetarian eats? It's a, a vegan, right? Yeah. And, and so I remember opening it up turning it upside down all the, the smarties the o henry kit kat bar i'm just like you don't need to know anything about nutrition though you're not going to be able to perform as an athlete yeah uh, eating this shit but um yeah i made a lot of friends that, that day. i just gave everything <laughs> to the whole platoon yeah and we and you in the canadian military you were second lieutenant uh, before you uh, left the military yeah i was a second lieutenant junior officer yeah, yeah. Now it's actually because I, I can go all over the place with this. Now let's talk vegan for a second. Now, is there a particular reason you are a vegan? Um, I, I just read a lot about it. Um, yeah, it was maybe like 10, 15 years ago. Whenever it was, just after I got out of university, I started reading about it. And uh, at the time, like it wasn't hip. Where I live here in Kitsilano, everyone uh, is vegan. Right? Yeah. anywhere it's vegan food it's 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 fashionable but when i started it wasn't like madonna was drinking gt kombucha and like you know it, it wasn't this big thing where all the celebrities were doing it or opening up vegan restaurants i mean moby's probably was doing it that far back <laughs> but for the most part most people weren't where i was living at the time of white rock which was you know retirement community and was commuting every day to campus ubc downtown uh there's there was nothing that like they, I all the closest I could find to people to relate to uh, 
that diet was just through books in the library. And so I just went and I read all of them. It's like, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it hasn't affected your performance is com like compared to prior or anything. No, I mean, I used to compete in, in the military. I remember we did a whole, our whole brigade uh, had a, a competition uh, for uh, physical fitness. And I think they had it divided up into three different uh, categories of ranks. There was the enlisted men, there was non-commissioned officers, and then there was the officers. I think I was the, I think I was the, the, the fittest officer, but to be fair, I mean, it wasn't really much of a competition because I think, most of them didn't chose not even to participate. They, they just, they, you know, they're fat or they had some excuse that like they <laughs> wanted to carry the clipboard or something like that. There was one other guy actually, I remember it was a second lieutenant who, uh, who participated. This guy just, you know, like he couldn't do any push-ups. Like now his body was just so feeble. Right. Yeah. And then every night after a uh, parade, they just go and drink like gambles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's typical. Uh, well, typical Western army, they don't actually drink in the, in the Israeli one. It's just dry bases everywhere. It's a totally well, different experience. I, I mean, one of the guys actually who I served with, when I went through my officer qualification, he was uh, ex-IDF. Yeah. And uh, he was telling us, like, we don't waste any time at all on IDF on, on uh, like, in, in the British system, which is what the Canadian system is, there's a lot of emphasis placed on drill, on yep. ceremony, marching. Uh, saluting on the march and all that. they don't waste any time with that the idea barely <laughs> like any you yeah almost yeah. never see any videos of, of them the, uh doing parades like they, they might have like an honor guard or something like that specific units that specialize in that for when there's uh foreign dignitaries there but it's not uh, something that uh, a regular infantry regiment spends a lot of time on right yeah, yeah for sure I, I do want to come back to that. i just because i the vegan thing interests me, like when someone's vegan goes into the military and, and you said it just felt right. Is it uh, like just uh, from a scientific perspective or is it just you feel better or is it? Well, when I went vegan, um, when I was, I guess, uh, it was 24, 25, um, I went for what I thought was scientific reasons. So I read a lot and it made sense. Uh, and then when I moved into Vancouver, I met all of these crazy, fascinating people that uh, I didn't know existed and who were uh, uh, what they called ethical vegans. Yeah. So I guess up yeah. until that point in time, I was a dietary vegan. I, I adopted the lifestyle because it seemed to make sense. But then I met all these animal rights activists and, and uh, environmentalists and so on. And I listened to them. I was, yeah, what they're saying makes sense. Um, and so you kind of had these two different categories of vegans you have the, the uh, uh dietary vegans and then you have the ethical vegans and then there's kind of a third category here where i live in, in kitsilano sort of the vanity vegans which is uh, they just <laughs> want to look uh, thin and, and beautiful forever yeah pretty um, much right i like i always ask people like why are you vegan because i know a lot of them are doing it because it's trendy and not for any other reason now i speaking for myself i i can't like i've tested around and if i don't have uh, animal protein it was too much like I fall apart and, and you know with with whether vegans right for people I always bring up uh, like the genetic aspect same for a lot of things people never want to talk about that 
is that for some some groups of people it can actually work really well and then other people it's just it, it's going to be a, a real struggle because i know a lot of people uh that often go on to be vegans and they're they're they fall apart because the, the genetic backgrounds now you're of indian descent right or a mix my or? mother's from from the punjab northern yeah. india yeah and then my father is is uh, mostly german german but, uh, okay that's interesting. also english and scottish yeah so that's an inter interesting mix because i always say like hey and it, it makes very sense canadian. sorry very canadian yeah now yeah, uh punjab being the sikh right uh, region yes yeah because i always say like if a hindu from india goes vegan it, and it works well for them. It makes a lot of sense given the fact uh, the religious dietary restrictions um, for like my genetics. It just like some yeah, people I mean, got the yeah. largest vegetarian army, a, a standing army in the world. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, they, they have no problem being able to carry massive amounts yeah. of equipment. Back yeah, I mean, it makes so complete yeah. sense given if that's the you have 10 generations of that. There's no reason think, it doesn't make sense. I think part of the problem is it's uh, um, our soils are so uh, inadequate now um, due to the way that uh, industrial agriculture has yeah. taken place for, for decades that uh, even when people adopt a whole foods plant-based diet, they're still getting an inadequate diet because the soils are inadequate. The soils are inadequate. The plants are inadequate. The plants are inadequate. The people become so as well. Yeah, makes sense. Like, you know, I, I actually started hunting a few years ago because like I need meat and I diet and I'd rather go get it myself than get it from a maybe, you know, what's organic in the grocery store? I don't well, know. Well, yeah, and I totally respect that. Like, yeah. I, it's not my cup of tea. I, I just I couldn't uh, uh, I couldn't kill an animal. Yeah. Um, but uh, I can I can respect that if you're going to eat meat, that you've at least seen how the sausage is made. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and it's it's not what people think. You know, I grew up. Uh, my parents don't do that. They're very city. You know, and I. I grew up hunting with my dad, not, oh, not yeah? very frequently. But yeah. Peasants, and you got them right in front of me. Yeah. Like, this is it, right? Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Like, because I didn't grow up with it. The first time I went and did that, it's actually it's like, oh, okay, like. And it is like a, a visceral experience. And then you're like, okay, well, I, I would rather uh, do this again, as I said, because like I'm against commercial factory farming. It's disgusting. And I, I think any argument uh, to promote them is, is, is terrible. <laughs> and yet, you know, you get a lot of these uh, lobbyists and, and politicians support. Like they refuse to back down. Like I know in Canada, they always sell the farming farming industry is oh it's family owned it's like mm, you mean a couple families own giant corporations now that exactly. own everything <laughs> like the mafia is family owned the banks were all family yeah. owned jp morgan it, 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 that that in itself is is not really a good criteria but yeah i mean like the, the largest lobby here in canada is not actually the energy sector or finance or big pharma it's it's actually uh, the dairy industry yeah i don't think it's, it's very well known here in canada i don't know if it's the same in the states probably not probably defense contractors but no. uh the dairy industry is very powerful here in, in canada yeah well maxime bernier when he before he split from the uh, conservative party he was pushing that hard 
And like, that's probably why he got slandered so much. Like I, you know, what he did later with his political party was like, uh, you didn't pull that off very well, dude. But like, he really tried to bring that to the forefront and you just saw the amount of visceral hate and slander against him just across the board. Cause he's going after the big lobbyists. In Canada. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's always, uh, especially when you're dependent on them for, for funding for your, your campaign. Um, you know, it's what do you do when you're listening? I know what I would do. I just I wouldn't take their money. But yeah. for those who are already balls deep in that, it, you don't really have a whole lot of options. Yeah, for sure. And, that, and fighting that lobbyist groups is, is very, very difficult, right? And, and, you know, you can see like with COVID, not just in Canada, like any country, you can see like, and it's not even like, say, lockdown policy. It's not even it's not even a political stance because there's it, people don't realize like you go to some countries that are very right wing and they're doing lockdowns and you go to places that are very left wings and they're doing lockdowns. And, exactly. and, and, you know, I think and probably you that the scientific data doesn't really support lockdowns as a solid method. And and yet everyone is still saying, yes, 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 yes. And you start to. Like I'm, I'm looking at the global systems, and I'm like, I, I think it's starting to fall apart because people are starting to really catch on to the to the lobbyists a little bit. Uh, you see what's going on in the states uh, with, like, I don't know how much you follow the policy, like with the Georgia election laws, and it's it's really backfiring because they're just basically lying about it to pander to their voter base, and uh, it's just like people are like, wait a second, what? And, and you know, I I, I know you um, do. Uh, computer programming, and I noticed you're into cryptocurrencies, right? Or not? Did I misread that? I'm not big into cryptocurrencies. I get asked all the time. Yeah. Companies call all the time wanting me to do something with them, and, and I'm polite. Like I won't hang up on them. Yeah. Yeah. Just not your thing, or I've never seen anything actually useful being done with it. Yeah. it it's it just seems exceedingly rare. Like I, I um. Almost all, all the transactions on uh, the Bitcoin blockchain are, uh, it, you know, it's things like high frequency trading, currency speculation. An economy can't survive unless somebody's actually got to produce something of value. Yeah, as Elon Musk said, if you don't produce, you don't have an economy or something. Exactly. Pretty so, it, but. When I listened to, uh, I remember that years ago, I was at, uh, um, meetup group here in Vancouver and there are a bunch of crypto enthusiasts there and there was also some people there from the Tor project who as I found out then were sponsored by the uh, State Department uh, which came as a bit of a surprise but you know it, it, I remember asking them like so what what is your definition of a thriving economy and they explained it in terms of Bitcoin basically lots of transactions and, and all that and I said well okay but I mean, I can invent, envision uh, a constellation of satellites in space that are just moving coins back and forth, and that would fit the description. So there's no life coordinate. There. There's no actual uh, productive element in your uh, definition of an economy. So I think my biggest concern with the cryptocurrency world is the uh, it's the lack of respect for labor. The, mm. the people want to get rich uh, uh, on these schemes uh, for the up and down uh, schemes and ICOs. I've seen them. Uh, yeah. I've seen them firsthand. And, uh, but they don't want to actually do the work involved of creating something of value uh, that people want. 
solving a problem and making money that way. It just seems like that's no longer a vogue anymore. Yeah, I think the the get rich quick, uh, ride the highs and lows of crypto is, 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 is not great. To me, like the way I'm one of those people that I love it because I don't like big centralized governments. And yeah. the argument behind using cryptocurrency is it's a decentralized currency. Now, I see Bitcoin being the new gold and maybe something like Ethereum being a more tangible, usable currency method. Um, and you just just because of human nature, we need something sort of tangible to anchor to. But like I've been listening to a whole bunch of uh, podcasts, uh, uh, like the creator of Ethereum, like Vitaly something and uh, um, Tim Ferriss has had some people on and, and a bunch of them, these guys that are just hardcore into it. And, and they're just they look at it as as our systems are not doing well. Right. Our economic systems are not doing well. And. Uh, even watch groups globally that normally look at third third world countries, uh, uh, you know, are saying Western first world countries are losing their freedoms and, and there's a power grab. Um, and, and they see cryptocurrency as a method to either halt or redirect things so that it can it can take the control out of any one small group of people like lobbyists or, uh, you know, political dynasties. And, and that's um the way I look at it, and I think some of these guys have been saying, don't play the highs and lows, just buy, put 50 bucks in every every paycheck and just sit on it for a while if you want to if you want to do that, because it's, it's going to be the future, probably, I think, personally, even if it doesn't encourage, you know, work specifically. It, the, the intention uh, behind it, I think some of the problems that it's set out to solve are, are, um, are good, like it does solve the issue of inflation right? yeah. that, that it, it does solve the issue of verification of, of transactions. Um, but I find that it also doesn't really address the, the, uh, I don't think the currency can address the biggest problems uh, that we're having uh, economically, which are more philosophical than, than technical. And that is, um, if you've got people who most of the transactions are people who are not productive or simply looking to speculate, um, then the choice of medium of exchange doesn't really matter at that point. There's no technical solution to an attitude problem. That's what I'm finding is that most of these people who are mining, uh, they don't do anything. They yeah. don't produce anything. They, they, they've got these mining rigs that consume more energy than some entire countries. Uh, but there's nothing being produced. And so they would say, well, you know, we're solving a math problem that yeah. uh, validates existing transactions. Yeah, but when 99% of the participants in that, that digital economy are doing the same thing, uh, where is the actual value, right? So I, th I think it's, it's, it's a more philosophical problem that I have with it. Where, yeah. uh, uh, like, I think another thing these people don't understand is, is that uh, money isn't wealth. Money is a claim on wealth. I go by uh, Carol Quigley's definition in Tragedy and Hope, where um, he made that distinction clear many times, where money um, isn't actually the wealth. It's, it's the claim on wealth. In other words, it allows you to have a stake in the things out the world that you want, whether it's a home or food or land or whatever it happens to be, a book, a piece of artwork, music. That's wealth. Those are the act and people who create those things are creating wealth. Yeah. And uh, um, 
up. If you see money as wealth and stuff, then you're going to miss out on all the really interesting fun things that are happening. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like, and uh, what was it? I forgot who I can't keep track of all the podcasts I listen to, but someone was actually discussing the history of the Bitcoin split. There was the small blockchain guys versus the big, and it sounded like the big blockchain guys. Again, I'm not technically knowledgeable about this, but it sounds like the big blockchain guys were the ones who wanted to get rich quick, and the small blockchain, the Bitcoin stayed the the, uh, the small because they really, really want it to be what they set it out to be, which was a standardized, you know, inflation-proof. Uh, unscrewable like governments can't to mess with it too much it'll have the value that people give it right which is really you know um buy sell as a basic fundamental of an economic platform right if people want it it'll be valuable if people don't want it it won't be valuable and then and just to operate like that right so i think i mean from that ethical perspective i think at least it looks like that the more ethical people won out a little bit <laughs> uh um, we'll see what happens it, I mean, all of these different systems, in, in my view, none of them really work in the long run. Like a, a fiat currency obviously has its own inherent problems, especially when it's issued by a central bank or the political apparatus controls the levers and knobs. Um, yeah. That's a big problem, especially when, when the state can, can create massive amounts uh, of printing money, which devalues the value of the money of existing money supplies. Yeah. That's a problem. Uh, some people say gold is the solution. I, I'm skeptical even of that. I, I think it it's it ha- definitely has its advantages that it's not issued by a central bank and you know you can hide it. Uh, you're responsible for its own security for your, your the security of that of that asset. Um, but uh, one of the things that I, this is where I disagree with people like Ron Paul. Um, they see gold as a as a, a measure of, of stored wealth. Yeah. Uh, and if you just put aside the definition, like what I I'd said before, that money's not wealth, it's a claim on wealth. But even then, if there's 79 tons of material waste that's created with just one ounce of gold, just think about that, like this entire room that I'm in, just filled with, with rubble, just for a little earring. I mean, that doesn't really seem like a measure of value. It seems like it's actually a measure of waste. So that doesn't seem to really work either. And then this cryptocurrency scene where for me, the biggest problem is not the technology, it's the people. Yeah. The people, yeah. like I've met some. Isn't that of these always people. the problem, though? It's the people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I've met some of these people, and, and they are revolting. They're drug dealers. They'll do anything at all that they yeah. can to get rich quick. And um, yeah, I, I just, I, I like to see money as utility. Yeah. Uh, but you still have to have someone producing uh, a wealth the, yeah. the paintings, the artwork, the books. Uh, growing the food, the software, whatever it is, uh, and that's that's the really enjoyable part. That's the part that I really enjoy about my life is, is creating uh, wealth. Same thing with my father as well. He was a very successful entrepreneur. It just runs in our blood. But we like to create things and solve problems. We just don't feel uh, like it's fulfilling to uh, put money into a bucket and then check back periodically to see if somebody else put more in there. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like, what is value? What is wealth? Like. I mean, something only has value if there's demand for it, if people want it, right? If nobody wants it, it doesn't have that like tangible value. But if if we as a species evolve to this perspective where we can just sort of self-sustain ourselves, then wealth, would, I suppose, would ultimately be experience, right? I, I suppose that's what you're getting at. If I'm, I don't know. Uh, it's it's complicated to say what exactly wealth and value is, but. 
there's be a problem with 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 your characterization of it and that would be well if we look at the tar sands for instance there doesn't yeah. seem to be a lot of, of value placed on fresh water yeah uh, and if no one valued fresh water it wouldn't change the fact that you biologically you're required to have it for your cells to function so there's probably uh, uh you know if it was like a venn diagram there'd probably be all the things that people value some of those things are are uh, uh non-negotiable and then there's other things that are shaped by culture and social values and so on and there will be some things that overlap uh, but the things that people value might not always actually be valuable the things that are valuable might not always be valued yeah so well, it sounds like you're you're taking a very you're being subtle-ish, but it's a very environmental approach, right? Not really. Well, I would say that uh, uh, I'm aware uh, of our interaction with our planet, and it is finite. Um, but politically, like the way I grew up, was my mother's very left-leaning. She was engaged in, in the labor movement. Uh, Sorry, the which in, movement? In the labor movement, oh, environmental yeah. causes. Uh, things of that sort. She's a feminist, devout feminist. And then my father, uh, he's uh, very right wing. Uh, uh, Milton Friedman, John sure. Birch, those are all among his influences. And they both, you know, give me their books of, of like, Castro the Revolutionary or Castro the Asshole or whatever. Right? <laughs> what I mean. So I, I grew up seeing the whole political spectrum. And, and uh, my position politically is, is I don't really align with the tribe. A particular yeah. tribe for all issues but for specific issues uh, I, I come to my own conclusion and, and i'm of the view that we are destroying our planet we, i don't think that that's entirely controversial um, but there has to be some relation between economic activity and uh, the life support systems of spaceship earth there has to yeah. be some causal relationship there you can't have a linear model where you extract it's consumed and then discard it so that's yeah. such a model it just can't work long term i mean they certainly don't use such a model on the international space station imagine if they just discarded uh, all the oxygen and even their urine right like they recycle all of that yeah you know it's actually funny you bring that up like people are always shitting on russia and i'm like they're not so bad they play nice in space you know who doesn't it's like china doesn't play nice in space but russia does and it's like when you look at the in the international space station it's like oh they actually really work together up there yeah no they do because the margins for error are so small and it's absolutely catastrophic it's like you can't afford uh, to be wasteful yeah up there because it costs unfortunately at least the way uh, that, that we move materials today with, uh, with rockets the fuel costs every it's it's enormously expensive to move even like one gram of mass yeah. up to the international space station so uh the way they live on there, there's there's certainly lessons for how we live on our planet. And the reason why it doesn't, we don't always connect the two is because the margins for error on our planet are much larger. If you screw up, say, an aquifer or uh, yeah, the soils, it might take you 30, 40 years of latency before um, those effects catch up with you. Yeah. Whereas the International Space Station, if you run out of oxygen, you're going to have a problem really soon. <laughs> Yeah, no, it makes sense. Now, I always bring this up when, when the topic of this comes up. I cannot, well, I, I understand why this comes back to that fear thing. And, and, you know, I generally believe that the average person is not very scientific literate, is that if we want to fix the environment, 
fast. Uh, well, oil is not going to go right, go away outright, but as a as a as a primary energy source, why are we not using new tech nuclear energy? And nobody wants to talk about it publicly, and it drives me nuts. You know, I mean, I don't know what you know about uh, modern nuclear design you know, reactors. Well, um, it's always been controversial uh, in Canada, in particular, in the United States. It's the big problem of. Uh, as long as nothing goes wrong, it actually it's 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 some of the cleanest energy you can get. But it's the problem of, of one when things uh, go wrong, and two, even if you don't have a meltdown, you still have the problem. What do you do with the, the byproducts of, of that process? Yeah, because you have nuclear waste, you've got to dispose of it somehow. And we've never, no one to date has been able to figure out a way not that I'm aware of about securely preserving that underground. In, 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 in storage facilities because they always inevitably leak, right? Yeah. Got, now, um, yeah, this is, you know, again, I'm not an, by no means an expert, uh, even close. Uh, even a, a few years ago when I, I used to read The Economist magazine quite religiously, and I remember reading articles about the new generation nuclear reactors that have little to no nuclear waste. Uh, everyone's favorite billionaire, Bill Gates, spent a, a small fortune trying to develop these, these newer generation reactors where they're basically self-sustaining and and like the the if we look at the three major meltdowns of, of older uh nuclear plants like they're either gen one like chernobyl or gen two like fukushima and the everyone forgets three mile and island because guess what they contain that one um and if you really look into fukushima that should never have happened it was human error of not fixing not fixing no it's gonna be fine um but I always yeah. look at when I talk to people who really know this stuff, they're like, yeah, nuclear energy. And I, I'm just like, is it just they, they don't want to inform the public or they just want I, I don't understand, you know, because as my knowledge, the technology has a, has evolved quite drastically and they just don't want to build the new reactors in most places. It is. But I, th I think um, you have to consider that it. it, it like take Fukushima for instance. It's a it's actually really uh, I think uh, appropriate example. What does a nuclear reactor do? Well, if you look at, at, at uh, a nuclear uh, um, fission reaction, all it does is it just it boils water. That's all it is. Yeah, it boils water and it, because the heat from from the reaction and that's captured, it's transferred into a, a fluid medium. It boils, it, it, it uh, evolves gas, and the gas drives a turbine, and the turbine drives a, a generator, uh, and that generator produces electric current, goes through a transformer, and all that. And you, you put it to work with whatever it is that you're using, a cell phone, a computer. Um, so really what we're talking about when we're talking about nuclear energy is we're talking about boiling water. And in a place like Japan, which is uh, a, a highly... Uh, 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 could be a very highly productive place in terms of uh, geothermal energy. Yeah, uh, they don't. They, there's no. There's no danger of a, a meltdown with those things. They're always having earthquakes for that reason. It's such a routine thing. It's like rain in, in Vancouver. It's like when people don't even get up out of their cubicles when there's an earthquake there. It's just such a common thing. You know? You're talking about uh, geothermal energy. Yeah, but geothermal energy—it's—it's it's not an exotic technology. It's been around since. Uh, well, I mean, like the, the the Romans were using; they've been around for for, for a very long time. The, the very first micro geothermal energy plant, I believe, was in uh, 
was in Italy. Um, Canada to date still doesn't have a, a national geothermal energy program. I think we're actually the only country on the Pacific Ring of Fire that doesn't. Yeah. We've got literally billions of joules of energy right underneath us. It's, it's boiling water. Uh, it's clean. You can cycle the vapor back uh, underground to uh, reduce uh, um, the effects it would have on the atmosphere in dispersing that gas. Um, no byproducts, really. I mean, the, the, the liquid that you're taking out of the earth can contain all kinds of contaminants, heavy metals and so on. But you just cycle that back into the earth. You extract the heat, you cycle yeah. it back down. So there's countries in the world that are doing this, like in Iceland and Ireland and, and so on. It's not an exotic technology. I mean, we're talking about a, a gas turbine. It's, there's nothing uh, novel about that. Um, but there, you, you don't even see that it, like people, it's not even a controversial technology. It's just not talked about. Yeah. You know, we're yeah. not talking about something that uh, involves a, 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 a zero point energy or something more controversial. This is, this is just boiling water around. Right? Yeah, I mean, I'm... My, my, where my aunt and uncle used to live, the neighbor at one point was building a house right next to them and they were putting geothermal energy, uh, in some degree into the house, just drilling down. Right. And, you know, this is, this is the thing is like, I was reading something a long time ago about if we really wanted to, we could go switch the entire power grid over to more renewable or environmental friendly energy. I'm talking about the power grid. Like, obviously we still need oil for some other things, but um, we could probably do it in 10 to 15 years. And it's just like, why aren't people doing? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, like the, the technology, the infrastructure and the, the people with the expertise to do this, uh, where we'll find them is in the tar sands. So, I mean, there's been a huge controversy for years about like, we know it's dirty, what they're doing. We know it's destroying the planet, but we also know that we're all dependent on that energy. And so you can't just uh, uh, have all of these people lose their jobs. They obviously need the same economic security as everybody else. So what do you do with them? And I think the answer is geothermal energy because the, the drilling infrastructure, the skills, uh, the geologists, all of the, those people, those skills are still useful. They're, they're portable to a new paradigm, a new energy paradigm. Um, and uh, it, it's lucrative. It, it, you don't run out of this, this energy underground because it's, it's powered by basically the Earth's core, a radioactive material uh, underground. So in that sense, they, they, there's a, a nuclear element to it, but uh, it's a natural one. And you just you can build these anywhere here on the Pacific Ring of Fire. Yeah. We have uh, drilling data as well. In fact, uh, the energy companies, when they do drilling for mineral exploration, they're required to um, supply their findings to to the Crown. The data is all publicly available. No one to date has ever done any microgeothermal energy uh, here in, in BC that I'm aware of. Yeah. Like, really, Canada's first interaction with geothermal energy this is not well known it's not a positive one we were actually uh um, it was during the second world war uh, canadian uh, pilots were bombing uh, uh german geothermal energy power plants in, in italy that were uh, probably being used to develop munitions or something but obviously the germans thought that it was useful enough 
to to be able to power an army and uh, develop a, a manufacture aircraft, all of that with that. So we can do that too. We can absolutely do that. Um, I think just no the lobby. It drives me nuts in Canada is is Canadians love as a pastime to sit there and shout at Americans for their politics. And then when you talk to Canadians, it's like, do you, do, do you even know what the laws are here? Do you, do you even know the politics here? Because Canada is, although it's not as crazy as down south, it's getting clearly more corrupt and, and, and influenced by those lobby groups. Because geothermal energy, again, most people don't know what it is or how to apply it. People still get, like when someone, you know, starts screaming, like, shut down the pipeline, shut down the tar sands. I'm like, you know, I agree we should over a period of time. But what's your plan to replace it? And, and people have no clue. And, yeah. and you, I, sure. you know, whether it's conspiracy or not, it's like the American oil companies really want to keep drying the oil down and they may be paying some of these lobby groups. Oh, yeah, I mean, Charles and David Koch have, uh, um, have definitely have something to say about that. They're behind a lot of lobbying here in Canada and in the States too. You never hear about them in the States, even, even in, in, in the, the alt-right and alternative news that's more right-leaning, you never hear them mention Charles and David Koch, yeah. uh, who pretty much like the wealthiest family in, in the country. Um, I th but I think part of the confusion that people have with geothermal is that they don't—they just don't know what it is. <laughs> and when they do hear about it, they're hearing about something that's totally unrelated to power generation. Yeah. So, like your your friends who were getting it installed in, in their lawn, it's totally unrelated technology. Yeah. So what that is is it doesn't generate energy. Uh, when you you hear about boomers, they get it in in, in uh, their lawn. What they're doing is it's actually a heat exchanger. So yeah. uh, when it's hot out, uh, um, yeah, they can. Uh, transfer the excess energy that's inside the house thermal energy into a fluid and then it goes out to the lawn and it dissipates because the, the 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 ground can act like a heat sink it's like sleeping on concrete you know you, you just it just drains you right so but then in winter time uh the ground can be uh heated up from solar energy from the sun right yeah. so that can be extracted and moved into the house but none of this generates energy like electricity at least in fact, you need a, a, a heat pump and so on to make it work, but it, it's still a good idea. But for whatever reason, that's called geothermal uh, energy, and yeah. it, I suppose it's a kind, but it's totally unrelated yeah. to uh, energy generation, which is the, 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 where you drill down vertically, uh, deep underground, and you're extracting energy from the Earth's core that's already there, and, yeah. it, and you transfer it to a liquid. Um, one of the problems was that, well, in order to get uh, this to work, you need to have uh, the water hot enough to boil, and it boils at 100 degrees. Um, so you may have to drill down very far. The cost of, of drilling is a function of, of how deep you have to go. So if you have to go down very far, then it's just not cost effective. Um, but what people don't realize is that we have the technology now where you don't have to use water because the assumption is that well, you have to use water and water doesn't boil down 100 degrees, but there's other fluids that you can cycle called binary cycle system where you can use like a butane or something and it's in a closed loop where these different types of, of alcohols will have much lower uh, boiling point, you know? Yeah. And, that's it, right? So there, there's solutions that are there. It's just, it's not talked about. It's, it's, I don't even know necessarily that it's suppressed. It's just not known. And 
you know, it's sad, but. No incentive, uh, my girlfriend's in finance. She's always, we've got to have an incentive, give people the right incentives or they're not going to do anything. Um, now, obviously, you have uh, a wealth of general scientific knowledge and general knowledge, global knowledge, probably because you were forced to, you know, the two dichotomies you grew up in. Uh, I don't know if I asked or it wasn't answered. Now, the Canadian Society for the Advancement of Science and Public Policy, was, was that created specifically to do with the current situation that we were talking about before at the start? Or is that because you generally want to... Is, is there like a greater goal of it? I, uh, if, you know? The long-term future of it, I don't know. But the, the work on our plate right now is enough that uh, contemplating anything beyond that this time yeah. is a difficult makes sense the work that people want us to do is uh dealing with the lockdown yeah. so that's what we're focused on now yeah because it, it, it now what is your actual area of expertise specifically as far as you studied would be traditionally thought as your area of expertise so my formal background is in artificial intelligence yeah and i studied at uh, ubc lex friedman uh, style it, what's that <laughs> lex friedman style you know, I mean, it, it, there wasn't very many people that were in our graduating class. I mean, yeah. UBC is kind of, when I was there, is you know, it's kind of a depressing environment. It's very uh, cutthroat, competitive. Um, computer science is like that now. Everybody wants to get in, but nobody does. Yeah. And, uh, uh, a good friend of mine who was actually one of my professors when I was there, we were talking about this not too long ago, that nobody gets in anymore. Yeah. Um, just because they can't or because it's no interest? No, no, there's lots of interest. There's far more interest than their seats, uh, but it's just, it's very competitive. It was very competitive when I was there as well. And then mm -hmm. after that, going to the military, it's even, you know, just as competitive. It's like I was already acclimatized to that environment and you just roll with it. But um, it's a problem that you see because when I went in, I don't know, my first lecture, there's maybe 80, 100 people there. And then on graduating day, I think there was like 10, 10, 15 of us. And we just looked like what happened you know like i knew and in my some of my peers you know, we weren't the smartest people there we just didn't give up and that's what happens a lot, lot most of the people that you go to school with they won't finish it's it's very rare actually that people do finish their their degree and there's lots of, uh, of reasons you know people uh, they get bored of it or they you know, they get pregnant or, or uh, they change majors or they, any number of things that can happen they run out of money. That's another thing too. Yeah, I had friends when I was at UBC were dumpster diving yeah. to make ends meet. <laughs> so it, it, there's a lot of things that can go wrong um, from enrollment to, to graduation. But I, I was one of the statistical anomalies that somehow managed to survive with some of my, my peers. It was it was a very interesting program because it was. Um, uh, if I had a chance to do it again, I would. It was the. Uh, I think maybe it's a bit arrogant, but I think it's the crown jewel of UBCs because it was interdisciplinary. And I think that today, the world's problems require uh, Renaissance people, people yeah. who are uh, taking a more holistic approach to looking at the world rather than just yeah. specialists. It's like Robert Heinlein, you know, Starship Troopers, wrote that uh, the problems of today need whole men rather than, than individual specialists. So even though this is administered, uh, by the Department of Computer Science, um, the uh, the training you get is uh, broader than that. So you, you 
would be doing a lot of computer science fundamentals. You have to do all the core stuff that the comp sci grads do with algorithms, data structures, you know, all of that. But uh, where uh, the computer science majors would have gone and done databases or graphics or something like that, something that's not absolutely essential, you, you would go off and you would do uh, uh, linguistics or philosophy of mind or, you know, it, it, lots of... It, there were four core fields that it was that that program was dependent on. The main one was computer science, but the other one, two or three was linguistics, philosophy, and, and uh, neuroscience or, or psychology. Yeah. And um, there were different streams. The one that I went through was focused primarily on, on uh, computer science. Yeah. Because, you know, it's interesting. Well, yeah. I think about this all the time this obsession with specialization, right? Um, a lot of the people that, like I follow, like Naval Ramakant, are you familiar with him? No. Yeah, I really recommend you check him out and, and what he does. And those sort of like Tim Ferriss and Lou, all these people. Lou Farrakhan? Uh, no, 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 not that guy. Uh, Naval, <laughs> yeah, uh, Naval Ramakant, he's like a, a tech uh, guru guy he, in Silicon Valley. Like he was one of Tim Ferriss's sort of mentors. But... The, the general trend a lot of that sort of bubble of people really push is if we want things to get better, it's we need to let the innovators innovate, right? And this obsession with expertise as we should only listen to these experts. Well, often experts, uh, especially if they're entrenched in academia, get very narrow-minded in, in their perspective. And you actually really... The idea is, you know, whether you like people like Elon Musk or not, like he's an innovator, right? These these are the guys that you just got to let them do their thing. And as long as they're not malicious or screwing people over, you, you got to let them do their things. And th I think the reality is no matter how smart you are, it's one of the hardest things to admit. Maybe I'm not that guy. And a lot of these people who are pushing that you need to be an expert uh, when really innovators are often generalists because they need to approach things from all sorts of different angles. Right. There's this resistance, I think, to letting innovators do their thing. Uh, Elon is an ex a perfect example is somehow he kind of just does what he wants. And everyone is like, well, OK, fine. But if a lot of other people try to do it, like the, his whole boring company thing where he didn't even get permits or permission, but they're like, well, OK, fine, because <laughs> you know? he's solving their problems for them. Yeah. Know? Yeah, and I think he's a creative, intelligent guy, and I think he's uh, generally well-intentioned. Um, I, 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 I'm a little bit reluctant to put him up on a pedestal. I know a lot of people see him as this, this great innovator. Um, I personally haven't seen anything that he's created yet that I thought was was innovative. I think he's, he's done, he's created uh, better instances of existing uh, technologies, and that's important that somebody needs to do that. But I don't think that creating a um, uh, battery uh, powered electric vehicles revolution, most of the vehicles on the road, most people don't know this in 1900 were, yeah. were yeah. battery electric. Corrupt he, it's certainly yeah. like you look at what they were driving in 1900, doesn't even compare it to his, his Tesla. My dad actually bought the Roadster. He was one of the, I think he was the first Canadian to own one here. Yeah. Elon handed him the keys on the stage. And I thought that was great. I was really happy for my dad, but I don't, I don't think it's like a, a revolutionary car. And yeah. I think a part of it is a lot of people, they don't understand, like I, you're smart, you know what he's doing, but there's a lot of people who don't necessarily understand the technical details of some of the things that he's, uh, he's created. Like, so there's a big, uh, a great deal of excitement in the world 
uh, you among my peers when he came out with the new uh, storage device, energy storage device, which is a battery for, for smart homes. And uh, I remember, uh, I didn't understand why everyone was so excited about it. And then I started asking people uh, some really simple questions. And, and it became apparent to me that I think that people got excited about it because they didn't realize that it's a battery. You still have to put energy into it. I think they thought that it generated energy and that's what made it so revolutionary. It's like, well, it may have like a higher energy density than uh, traditional batteries, um, but a battery in itself is, is not really a revolutionary thing. I mean, we have bad batteries that go back thousands of years. It's not a, a big deal. Yeah. Uh, but he certainly made improvements on that. And I think he should be commended on that. Yeah, I mean, the way I look at it is, well, you can look at it like this, Nikola Tesla versus Edison, right? Who was the more creative one? Well, Tesla. But yeah. who's the one who changed the world? It was Edison. You, I mean, Edison was kind of a dickhead. But It is true. But remember that most of the people who, uh, who that household name now today, Tesla, they think it's a car that a guy in California came up with. Yeah. They have no idea that the actual uh, uh, Serbian whose name that they borrowed um had no patents he had no heirs no 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 estate that's why there's no uh trademark infringement or anything like anyone come up with a cereal tomorrow called uh, tesla cornflakes if they want to they're not going to get sued um, yeah so he I mean, uh, uh, and uh i think it's important to realize that that the real tesla wasn't working on battery electric vehicles. I mean, he was well past that. I mean, he was saying this is before even the Second World War was over that uh, we don't need them. We don't Wasn't need he working on Wi-Fi near the end of his life before, like in the 1800s or whenever? <laughs> he had found uh, ways of um, pulling energy out of the vacuum of yeah. space. And uh, he wasn't the first person to do this or the only person to do this. There's been many successful attempts at this around the world in Japan and the United States and the UK, Canada, even here in Vancouver. But you you don't hear about it. It's not reported in the media. Yeah. And uh, these energy problems have been solved as far back as, as uh, the 1950s. Even before people had color televisions, we had ways of, of uh, uh, there's many different ways of obtaining the energy needs that we need. Even here in Canada, Transport Canada had a uh, a document that was released possibly accidentally through a uh, freedom of information request some years ago, which showed back in, uh, I think it was uh, 1950 or 1951, Transport Canada had successfully done uh, experiments here where they were able to pull above unity energy um, out of the uh, Earth's magnetic field. So a unity means, um, so the energy that you put into a machine and the energy that you get out the ratio of those two is how efficient it is so if you have to put in more energy than you get out it's not really useful to you right so uh they were able to get out more energy than was required as the load in order to keep this machine running and they're not the only ones to do that but you just don't hear about it uh, yeah no it makes sense no i think like so like elon the way what i think it is is he's he forced the hand of status quo people um an example would be the NASA thing is if you look at how NASA was treating Elon, you're never going to do it. The private industry sucks. You need us. You need us. You need us. You need us. And if it wasn't for Elon, I don't think NASA would be looking at the Mars like they are now. And I, I remember 
uh, watching, uh, what was the last rover they landed in NASA? Curiosity or something, I believe? Yeah, Curiosity, and, there's another one as well. Yeah, and at the in, in the broadcast, whoever the scientist was, NASA guy that had, uh, it, the thing he said resonated with me. He basically was like, you see, we're still relevant. And it's like, you assholes, the way I look at it, you assholes have been sitting on your ass for the last 30, 40 years. And yes, you've, you've uh, done a lot technologically that trickles down into, into... But Elon came along, did his thing, and said, I'm going to go to Mars, I'm going to do this. And they're like, no, you can't do it, you can't do it. And then he started doing his rockets, and they're, and they're like, hey, uh, we'll work with you now. And it's like, it, that's, you know, love, hate, or, you know... Obviously, I don't think you should put Elon on a pedestal either. But if he didn't do what he did, we I think we'd be a little bit more stagnant uh, than we are right now. There's some movement forward now because he's basically saying, hold my beer times a million. <laughs> you know? And NASA's an interesting organization. I, I uh, had to work with them closely some years ago on another project that I was doing. Actually, it was, it was uh, pertaining to the Red Planet. But there's a lot of, of things that the good people at NASA have been deprived of. Yeah. There's been some amazing technological achievements that have, have uh, occurred over the last century, uh, not just in the United States, but abroad, but in particular in the United States, especially post-Second World War. And um, those engineers, those people who work in aerospace, do not have access to a lot of those achievements. Uh, and that's why we're still using basically 19th century internal combustion engines uh, to get into orbit or to try to go to another planet. And um, it's a bit embarrassing that I think it was, uh, oh, what was the, the gentleman's name who runs PayPal? Peter Thiel. Yeah, Peter Thiel. He was, yeah. he was saying a few years ago that it's been 60 uh, something years since the 1950s and we're still, um, we're still, it still takes the same amount of time to fly from Heathrow to, to JFK. Yeah. There hasn't really been any uh, uh, material uh, technological achievements that time. There's been improvements, like computers are certainly faster than they were 40 years ago, but the, uh, the integrated circuit transistors have been around since 1947. They're just smaller and faster, but the basic idea is there. And it seems as though there was this sudden burst of activity post-Second World War when uh, a lot of the jewels uh, of uh, the scientific research that had been uh, recovered yeah, through from Europe, yeah, in particular in the Czech, uh, what was then Czechoslovakia, yeah. uh, came back to the States and they ended up in American industry and Ford, General Motors, Intel, and IBM, and so on. And so they got a head start on the world. Um, but the, the, a lot of those technologies did not find their way <clears throat> into, into uh, NASA, at least not in, in um, uh, uh, the more conventional areas of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Yeah. We got Tang. That was our concession. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would like to, to see um, that organization. Um, it, it's, it's really not about... Uh, uh, just money i mean they they have money it's about access to technology it's not even necessarily about innovating new ones a lot of these problems were solved a long time ago um 
it's unfortunate, but it, the 20th century was very much a lost century in terms of what the general public has been deprived of. They don't realize that yeah. before we even had color TVs, a lot of these, these uh, problems uh, were solved. And um, the Federation of American Scientists, uh, so it's a very prominent, well-respected uh, institution that started I think in after the uh, Second World War is the, the um, is a group of scientists that originally worked on the Manhattan Project. Yeah. So these were some of the world's uh, great, greatest scientific minds. And uh, is a few years ago they put out a uh, an article stating that uh, there have been thousands of inventions that had been sequestered under national security uh, orders, um, and, and uh, with no explanation for that. And, they were concerned about that because some of the, the uh, devices uh, and inventions that were seized were, understandably, some of these things were uh, of military significance. So obviously, you don't want to have people, ordinary people, to have be able to manufacture nerve gas or nuclear weapons in their basement. Um, but there was a United States patent screening officers. They have a list actually that they they look at and. When you're patent that you're you're submitting, and people apply for patents all the time because that's how they believe that they're going to have some kind of a temporary monopoly on some kind of economic activity. They go naturally to the, the patent office and they go file a patent. The patent officers have a list that they go through, and uh, they can check to see whether or not what you're working on fits particular description. And if it does, um, not only will they not grant the patent, but they're going to seize the invention and uh, things can get hairy. Um, a great example of this was, uh, was a few years ago, it, the U.S. Patent Screening Office, U United States Patent Office, the screening list that they use actually leaked. And um, I remember I was at a meeting with some, some colleagues a few years ago, uh, geeks, and geeks are, are, are uh, they can be both very intelligent and both very, very arrogant at the same time. Yeah. They believe they know everything. And uh, I started talking about this, the things we're talking about now. They say, oh, there's conspiracy theories and so on. And so I just I pulled out the patent screen list and I just gave it to them. And then the whole room went silent because what they read in there was uh, solar panels that had above, I think it was 17 or 20% efficiency uh, were to be seized. And so I asked them, you know, what, what's the, 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 is there a unique military application for efficient solar panels how about here right here look at this part here this, these are batteries uh high energy density batteries seized and you can see who, which organizations were uh, uh had made the request uh that these uh inventions be seized and, and it was uh, uh, u.s air force uh navy uh nasa and so on uh these are public institutions that are supposed to be uh, protecting and facilitating uh, life for millions of Americans, and yet they're depriving them of some of the greatest achievements uh, in, in our technological history. Yeah. So and they shut up after that and yeah. realized so there was a whole chapter of the, the 20th century that uh, they had been excluded from the textbooks. Um, but I, I'm of the strong conviction that we've solved a lot of these problems a long time. We don't need to necessarily innovate. It's good to innovate, but it's also good to not reinvent the wheel. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and you know, it just gets me thinking. Like, I, I 
for whatever reason, good or bad, I, I find my entertainment, uh, both good and bad, in politics. And that's, you know, one of the topics you never talk to people about because it gets them angry. And the attitude of most people seems to be, uh, it doesn't affect me or I don't like it or it just doesn't benefit my life. Um, and I'm just like, you, you guys are so wrong because we're letting these people run around and run our lives in ways that you have no idea because none of you want to get out of your bubbles and just be like, no. You know, the example being all these environmental protesters, when you actually talk to them, a lot of them have n no clue about any of this stuff. And uh, people just like the idea of doing things uh, because it's like a cause or a movement. And, and, and I'm just like, we really need as a people to take our politics more seriously and stand up and stop tolerating this kind of nonsense where no 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 you don't understand we're protecting is no you're not yeah you're you're playing interference for your rich friends you're playing interference because of uh, xyz or lobbies and and i i'm always trying to encourage people to get more involved in politics and have and just not tolerate uh dishonesty um you know sort of the COVID thing without getting too much into it i look at like you look at countries that did really well like taiwan and south korea and i'm always like they're like well they they always sort of throw off the Taiwan thing and they're like, um, well, they're an island. It's easy. Or, well, their population does what they're told. And I'm like, you know what else their population does? They get rid of corrupt politicians pretty quickly. Uh, they don't tolerate it. <laughs> so that's why the public, uh, Asian culture aside, will will tolerate, will listen to their politicians a little bit more because there's that trust. They've built up that trust in, in the last, uh, you know, 20, 30 years where they're like, while I'm sure there's still some corruption, they just really don't like it when their politicians are blatantly lying or big corporation, like the whole Samsung thing in South Korea, they ousted that prime minister so fast, <laughs> you know, and it just drives me nuts that people don't want to inform themselves properly and get involved in a meaningful way with the internet. Well, I mean, it makes it so easy. How, I mean, how do Canadians know anything about yeah. the world? It's, it's, through corporate government sources of information and in that sense we're we're not much better off than the americans but one of the great things about uh, the covid measures here in canada is that it's turned millions of people to start paying attention to their own country uh, a lot of people i know just found out that they have their own constitution yeah really they, well, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people don't know that. They, they don't know that because when they get their news, they're getting it from American sources of information, which is all corporate. And uh, they don't know what's going on in the world. Or if they think they do, it's um, through an American lens. It's, I think it's like it's Mark Twain that said, you know, if you don't read the newspaper, you're not informed. And if you do, you're misinformed. Yeah. And uh, if you watch American news, you will be very visible, including alternative news in the yeah. States. Yeah, I, I, I think that both sides, the alternative news and mainstream news, there's a lot uh, uh, of uh, compromised individuals in, in these, uh, these publication forums. And that's always been a concern for me. But I'm happy, though, that more Canadians are paying attention to what's yeah. going on in their own country uh, and not taking their inspiration from Sort of the, what I like to call the American Cola Wars. Yeah. It got sort of this false dichotomy between these two parties. They don't really vary on anything substantial, on um, foreign policy, on really anything. Um, and 
and uh, you know, I, I think it's 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 good that that uh, people are paying more attention. But I also worry that sometimes they're also getting more confused. Yeah. Every day as you learn, or they they listen and read to more American news. Um, I think the problem is like a friend had told told me that you know the, a lot of these people they watch American news because it's just it's a better sitcom and better ratings. <laughs> you watch Canadian Question Period; it's not really that interesting. Uh, but in the states, there's always something uh, ridiculous going on, some scandal, or whatever, and that happens in Canada too. It's just it's just, for whatever reason, it's just not as entertaining. Yeah, there's less personalities in, in Canadian. Like, I mean, I, yeah, I always tell people like. If you're talking about Canadian stuff, stop watching American sources, right? You know, people will be like, I plead the fifth. I'm like, that doesn't exist here, guy. <laughs> like, come on, you man. Know, and, and it, it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's concerning for me. Like, I had some friends over a while ago. I know I've told the story before, but this actually, I think, is quite illustrative of, of the problem. Uh, I had two friends over. One of them is very uh, left-leaning. The other one is more American right-leaning. It's all relative yeah. to the country. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, exactly. That's why I always call it American, right? It's not, you know, it means different things to different people depending where you are yeah. at the time as well. Uh, but they were having a debate about, uh, I think it's Justice Barrett's recent uh, Supreme Court appointment in the United States. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I read, that, read about that. Yeah. Right. And so uh, my friend who's on the left was, you know, uh, he, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't too thrilled about this because... Uh, Trump uh, team Coca-Cola was advocating uh, uh, for her and the Pepsi people were really upset about this and, and uh, um, they were spouting off various uh, biographical minutiae about her about how long she's been doing this and that and where she's from and I thought to myself man that's really interesting because they're Canadians regardless of who's appointed to the Supreme Court in the United States it has no bearing whatsoever on the decisions that are made on a daily basis in you know, our courthouse or our Supreme courthouse, just down the street from me. Uh, and, and so why is that? Why, why, why is that so much more important to them? Like most of these people probably could name a single Canadian judge and, yeah. and maybe they shouldn't need to know that, but yet they know so much about what goes on in a foreign country. And I think part of the problem is that the, the media, uh, uh, the language that it uses is, um, it describes the United States as if it is the the only country in the world. Like for example, when they talk about the president, who are they talking about? Well, it's just assumed they're talking about uh, Trump or Biden, um, but they're not the only uh, United States in the world. There's uh, several United States. They're not the only country with a White House. There's one in Kyrgyzstan, in, 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 uh, in Chile, in Moscow. Uh, they're not the only republic, constitutional republic. They're not the only country with a Congress. They're not the only country with a president or a Supreme Court. Uh, so stop talking about it. Like it, it, it's presumed. It's not the, the center of the universe. It's a country among countries. And people need to recognize that. As long as they keep listening to American sources of news, they will have a world, uh, view of the world. Yeah. My worry is, and I'm starting to see it a little bit, uh, you know, I in Canada, I'm I, I guess more of a conservative because I just don't agree with. I, I'm always a small government guy, so I and you don't really get that in Canadian politics anyway. But if your answer is more top-down control and more taxes, I'm always going to be like, nope. Um, but uh, sorry, what was I saying before that? 
I lose my well, I agree with you, what you're saying. Yeah. I, I think that small government is an important thing. I would love to see something in our constitution, including in the states, where there would be some kind of a limitation on the size of government uh, um, as a portion save GDP or, or gross revenue or something like that. Government cannot get any larger than this. You have to go and clean house before um, you ask for more money. And they refuse um, to do that. The status quo is digs its heels in and says, nope. It's like I was following the Canadian conservative leadership race. And I I, uh, I really wanted, uh, what's his name? The former defense minister to win. Peter oh, Hillier? No, Peter McKay. Because uh, Hilliard, I don't think, was running at the time. Uh, Peter McKay, because I, I can't stand our current leadership in Canada. I cannot stand. He's such a clown. And... Uh, and I was like, Peter McKay, people can relate to a little bit more. But in one of these question sessions, someone was asking him, like, what are you going to do about the bureaucrats and big government? And his response is why people didn't vote for him was, well, one of the reasons was, he's like, well, I respect the bureaucrats and we need them. And da, 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 da. And you start seeing that it doesn't actually really matter a lot of the time what side of the aisle you're on is they want to keep protecting that system. And you can see globally, this isn't just a North American, globally, people are saying our systems don't work. Now, the arguments people have often for why the systems don't work, I think, are just off in La La Land half the time. But there's a, the thing that everyone seems to agree on is our status quo systems are not working. People are not happy. And, and the response from governments left and right is dig heel in. And anytime an outsider tries to come in and change it, they dig a heel in and slander and change and refuse to allow. And it's like, do you know what happens when tension hits its breaking point, guys? Because if you keep doing it, that's going to happen. And I don't think it's conspiratorial. I think it's just human nature. Is, is yeah. Either we're going to end up with a China-style authoritarian, no-freedom government globally, which I is what I'm fearful of. Or we're going to have some massive civil unrest, whether it's local or, or global. I don't know. But it's just I cannot believe that the answer is always like, no, we need to protect the system. And it's like, that's the problem. Yeah, I, I think with like Peter McKay's uh, uh, answer, he, I, I've, I've talked with him a couple of times, not very much, but uh, he, he's a, he's an interesting guy. Yeah. Um, I don't agree with a lot of the things that he says and does, but um, he's intelligent. He's a barrister. I don't, I don't know if that really means he's smart, but he, uh, he probably knows, I'm sure he knows that, one of the largest voting blocks in Canada, if not the largest, is uh, government employees. Yeah, so always. 20 years ago, I think uh, one in five Canadians worked for government. That's pretty significant if you think about it, right? And I would imagine today it's probably larger, maybe one and a half out of five. I, I don't know, but uh, that's a significant voting block. So if you start talking about uh, responsible government and downsizing civil service that's something that millions of canadians just don't want to hear yeah <laughs> regardless of whether you're right or or, or left-leaning uh civil servants do not want to hear that have you ever read uh anti-fragile nasim taleb no i haven't it's a really good book um my girlfriend's actually <laughs> really going down the rabbit hole of this guy who really hates him but it's interesting the book itself whether you like him as a person is is great and it's just talking about fragile systems and, and that's 
the innovation aspect is we need systems that aren't fragile and can pivot when needed. And when you start having a government as the only or primary source of employment, it becomes fragile and it can't pivot. It can't change because if they make a decision that's wrong and everyone's employed by them, you just screwed everyone. Right. And that's sort of the argument for smaller government. It's more nimble, uh, free markets with restrictions. So you uh, I call them anti asshole laws is all we really need um, so that we can be more more ability as a human species to move and change and grow and go in a good direction. But if you're always like this is how it has to be, um, you're going to run into problems consistently. And if they keep taking Band-Aid approaches, which is what I think people are, people in government keep doing. Uh, we're going to have serious problems in the next 10, 15 years because you can feel it in the air. It's almost like yeah. World War One tensions. in many it, It's it's difficult to figure out. I and mean, people have been writing and contemplating what the proper role of, of government is and uh, what it should be doing and who should be it uh, for a very long time. And there's never been consensus on it. At times like right now, when you look at the, the cost, the overhead of, of government in a country like Canada, the, the libertarian philosophy is attractive. Um, but if you go too far down that rabbit hole, you, you know, what Reagan did in, in the, the uh, mid 80s, yeah. uh, they're still feeling the repercussions of that today. Like so much of the public infrastructure in the States is in absolute ruins. And, and when that happens, uh, the right will step in and say, this is why the marketplace should be solving this problem, why the marketplace should be delivering your mail or whatever, right? Yeah. Because everything is in ruins. And it's true. When you go over the border, everything does look like it's in ruins. You go to Blaine or whatever. Um, but I don't know that that's necessarily a, a, a result of the failure of, of giving government certain responsibilities that it, it wasn't able to fulfill or there were other forces at play as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's how, like, you want to, what you think a government should look like, because, you know, in a true democracy, the masses, like, if if everyone votes 80% one way, even though that 80% is horribly, like, the horrible idea, um, technically, in a true democracy, that's the direction you have to go. And so that's the question is, uh, if the masses want something that's completely not good, but you have to go that way, how do you resolve that problem? Now, I think it's, you need to educate properly and stop letting people resist education and don't make education indoctrination, right? Because we discussed like a lot of people don't know anything. They don't know as much as they think they do. They don't know how our systems work. Uh, scientific literacy, like I'll give that to people on the left or like the, the Democrats, you know, in the States is scientific literacy is terrible, right? And, you know, I'm not a, I, I'm, I don't like math. I never took physics classes. I never took any of that. But I understand the importance of the ideas and the knowledge as a general concept. And, and not necessarily the, the really advanced topics, but just understanding something as simple as a fraction. Yeah. Most yeah. people, I, I remember explaining this to some people recently, but they didn't understand the infection fatality ratio and yeah. how yeah. cases work. And I remember asking, like, you know, when the denominator gets larger, that's the number on the bottom, what happens to the whole thing? Yeah, and they thought. Well, some people thought. Well, it gets larger. It's like no. If if one over ten is larger than one over a hundred, yeah. If you keep making the bottom number bigger, then the whole thing gets smaller. And if that's what happens, yeah. <laughs> like you know. So it, there is a cost. There's an economic cost. There's a social cost to to uh, scientific illiteracy. Um, 
but I think actually the biggest thing that's lacking from our educational system is philosophy. It just seems like it's been uh, to uh, uh, a hobby or something for some people as if uh, um, it should be lumped in there with, with uh, basket weaving and, and pastimes. <laughs> but somehow it seemed to be appropriate enough for, for kings and emperors and, yeah. and that's what for several millennia, but it was remote. Actually, it was never really in the curriculum. Well, people always forget philosophy was the basis of science originally, at least in modern modern history, right? The, the asking the questions and ha learning how to think and construct arguments um, is is super important. Now, I stayed away from philosophy when I went to university. I, I ended up not finishing a bachelor's. I settled for an associate's because I just cannot stand the environment on, on universities nowadays. There's no free thinking. There's no intellectual discourse in a meaningful way it's you know cancel culture and wokeism yeah and the political correctness was just kind of starting when yeah. when I, I i was wrapping up my program but it's not as as bad as it is now well i mean it it kind of was it, you know like my girlfriend at the time i was telling you before that computer science is very brutal to get yeah. into it's, it's highly competitive and my girlfriend at the time she was majoring in biology and uh, the computer science and biology departments had, had made some joint announcement about uh, uh, they were doing some combined major program in, in uh, uh, bioinformatics or something like this, like a joint major in computer yeah. science and biology. And she was really interested in exploring that further. So I took her to meet uh, the program director at over at the computer science building. And we sat down answered all the questions at the end she said, it's great so uh where do i i send my transcripts and uh he looked at her and said oh don't worry about that we have quota yeah. <laughs> and at the time i didn't really think about it i was like uh no that's great that she, she wants to get into this program she can get into it but then i thought that's kind of really uh, offensive to women saying that they're they're uh less intelligent less capable yeah. uh than a man and i and uh I know that she is quite intelligent, but still, it was disappointing in retrospect to hear them say that. So that it was just starting to become fashionable yeah. then. But people, I don't think they're it, it, people were thinking as critically about it uh, then as they are now. That hey, uh, maybe this this effort to make the world more fair is actually making it less fair. Yeah, and it's. it's I don't know what we're gonna see. I'm hoping that the back. I, Unfortunately, a lot of the backlash is coming from the religious right, which uh, I'm not a fan of religion. I can res I actually respect it a lot more than I used to. Um, but it's like it should be coming from the center, right? Really <laughs> come from the rational center that's saying, hey, guys, um, this is not making sense. You're not getting the results that you think you're getting. You're not applying scientific method. You're not applying region and you're shutting down uh, critical thinking. Um, now, one of the reasons I did avoid philosophy, even though I'm drawn to it in university, is because a lot of the times it's hit or miss with your professors and it's everyone passes. Yay, because there's no wrong idea. And it's like, no, you should be passing or failing based on how well people construct their arguments. That's the purpose of it. Now, if you look at uh, two of the most employable degrees are actually history and English, which is like, what that, that doesn't make sense and on a surface level. And then you realize, well, it's because they put such emphasis on the ability to argue and construct things and communicate that when people go out into the workplace, they're able to sell themselves. 
And you're like, oh. And philosophy, a lot of the times, depending on, of course, the professor and where it is, I think in the universities might have lost that if you're just passing everyone because the idea, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. I, I found that, you know, I took some history classes and uh, I found them to be some of the most useful classes and the professors were some of the most open-minded and most helpful and most intelligent people because you know well all everyone else is telling you you can't use wikipedia as a source the history professors were sure you can why not if, if it's there and it's generally accepted because the history professors will accept that well this may be our idea of history now but we may learn a new fact tomorrow and we have to change it so it's always in flux and they cared more about your ability to construct the argument and your and your structure of it than anything else i had one professor he did something completely different and i was like that's what this needs to be he our midterm paper was also our final paper so you'd pick uh, a topic you know a couple weeks in and you'd write a midterm paper now this guy's amazing because you take you know it's at Kwantlen which is 30 40 person classes you can't really do this at a university I don't think uh, a traditional one um, and he would by hand go through everyone's papers and deconstruct it or say here's a good reference and then his expectation was that you would rewrite that paper for the final paper and he would see based on did you learn from your first paper and I was like, that's brilliant because that's how the workplace works. That's how any progression works. It's not about pass fail. It's did you learn and grow and get new knowledge? And I just thought that was a brilliant way to teach. And I'm like, I, more teachers need to do that. It's just too much work. Like, this guy was yeah. a workaholic. <laughs> well, it, it raises the interesting question of what, what is the purpose of higher education? Um, I don't even know if there's consensus on that, but there was originally uh, a common understanding. But I think today, if you were to ask people what its purpose is, you'd probably get conflicting answers. But the most common would probably be uh, to prepare people for the workplace. Yeah. And I don't know that's why I went. I certainly didn't go to school to get an education so that I could become a abstract unit of account in yeah. place to to uh, you know, generate revenue for some other firm although i do that that's not why i went yeah uh, the real reason was uh I, for me i think the good uh, the important part about education is to build better citizens thinking citizens that yeah. can critically examine the world around them the decisions that are made and make responsible decisions for themselves and, and uh, the community and I mean, if you look at the history of higher institutions, that's what they originally were. Now, granted, given that the average person was not literate, it was reserved for the wealthy and aristocracy. Yeah. But the ideas of them were the pursuit of ideas, knowledge and truth. And then, you know, Henry Ford comes along and there's a bit of societal restructuring. And, and yeah, that is the common belief that the, uh, the universities are meant to get you the job and now i've been i had this debate like uh, i studied university in 2012 did it for a couple of years took a break uh went back finished uh, a couple of courses i needed for the associates but i remember talking to like students from africa and i would say to them why are you in university and they're like i want to get a job and i'm like you do realize in north america at least getting a bachelor's doesn't guarantee you a job because i know tons and tons and tons of people 
who have a bachelor's and are working at Starbucks or wherever they're working that's not meaningful. And just they would get angry about it. Now, in Africa, having a bachelor's is going to get you a job because it's not the norm. But now that I think having higher education is a norm, it's no longer it's no longer special and it doesn't indicate that you're any more capable of being hired. Now you look at what Google's doing is they're kind of like, whether it's a good or bad idea, I'm not really sure. Like to hell with higher education. Here's our online program. Do this and we'll see if we like you, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that, that could, it's useful for, for, for them, but ultimately what they're assessing people for is their merits in their organization to produce yeah. the things that they want, the way that they think and see the world. And um, you, you are right, though, that originally at universities, they didn't exist to provide vocational training for a workforce. These were created and originally populated by uh, people who did not need to work for a living. Yeah. These were people who came from families of means and, and uh, they went on to become study medicine and become a practicing physician because their dad was they had to do something and they weren't dependent on it for their livelihood they had vast estates and it was something like a hobby but also a bit of an identity as well um and some of them would go and study astronomy or music or, or what have you uh, but these are all really just sub-disciplines of philosophy that's where the word phd came from originally so uh if you're a doctor of philosophy yeah, yeah. And then talking about critical thinking, uh, to me, when I teach, you know, my specialty is Krav Maga, self-defense in general, I suppose, um, my base principle is critical thinking. You know, everyone will always be like, when I say, what's the most basic principle of Krav Maga, they usually like situational awareness. I'm like, ah, but you need critical thinking for that to even matter. Because if you can't critically think about the awareness and the environment around you, it's kind of irrelevant. And my, my approach to teaching self-defense is not what most people are expecting. And people either love it or they hate it. Because, you know, I do keep to the principles of Krav Maga, like aggression training is necessary and training your nervous system and getting the appropriate techniques. But to me, it's almost like I have to, like, unindoctrinate people and their silly ideas that they have about this um, with regards to just in general. Because I look at self-defense as it's not just a physical endeavor it's a mental and it's an no, environmental. I mean, anyone who, who has a, a more intimate understanding of the, the martial arts uh knows that it, it's not just about uh remembering a sequence of moves to apply a particular situation uh you have to train the whole body including your, your nervous system um and yeah I, I think more people should should uh study martial arts I know I, I, it did wonderful things for me, and it has for, for many other people, too. Yeah, and since we're on it, what, what uh, martial arts did you study? Uh, so I did some mixed martial arts after I was in high school. I did karate when I was much younger than that. But after, uh, throughout university and after that, um, I was very fortunate in that uh, I, I happened to cross paths with uh, a man named uh, Peter Hubert. Mm. Uh, you won't find him online. He has no internet presence. Um, One of those guys. <laughs> yeah, uh, but he, it turns out that he, well, he had an enormous impact on my life. I learned a lot from him, but he was kind of my Yoda, and he still is. Um, he was a, an infantry officer in the Army. Uh, he was also a sniper, what they called an overwatcher. So, uh, But he 
more importantly, he is one of the last of the classically trained uh, uh, fencers on the planet. He trained the classical French uh, school of the sword, which is usually when people think of martial arts, they think uh, of something that came out of Japan, China, Korea, yeah. uh, or India. Some that, but uh, Europeans had martial arts too. Um, and so I studied uh, uh, foil, epee, saber, and uh, eventually the 15th century two-handed Germanic broadsword. Yeah, those saber big seconds. <laughs> yeah, but the, the saber was was by far uh, my favorite uh, blade. Uh, there's, there's a lot that you could do with it. Um, the foil and epee were uh, stabbing weapons, to be, to be perfectly blunt. Uh, but the saber is a slashing weapon, so you could use it mounted. I did a lot of horseback riding. Oh, nice, yeah. And uh, when I was a kid, and uh, a weapon that you impale someone with, and this is pretty gruesome, but uh, uh, a weapon that you impale someone with, you can't really use mounted. So if you're galloping and you're charging at uh, a, a, a line of infantrymen, and your blade it gets impaled in someone's chest. What happens to that blade when you're now disarmed, right? Yeah. And it's vulnerable. So with the saber, uh, you can slash with it. So you can charge, you can impale someone, uh, and then you can use the spinal column as a fulcrum. And yeah. Blade through it, and you can carry on riding, and so you're not disarmed. So, um, yeah, and just it's a, a cool looking blade, really cool looking blade. Weird. I always thought. We're kind of saber because you know there's lots of curved uh, styles of that. Like you know, Mongols had had curved swords. Uh, katana, all of them could be used on horseback or on foot. Yeah. That's right. And I mean, the sabers really—it's actually really like a, a, a category, or a class uh, of swords, um, and it's difficult to precisely define. But uh, the it, it's—they're not always curved, but usually. And um, it it sometimes uh, they they could be double sided blade. I've never I never handled anyone like that. My broadsword, yes, um, but the foil and epee they're really just sharp, uh, mainly at, at the point, right? Yeah. And um, that's how they work. It, the foil was originally uh, it was meant for it was it, some described as a bit more effeminate. Uh, yeah. blade because it's very lighter isn't it uh, uh, the three musketeers that whole like thing that's more akin to a foil yeah i, I mean they there were uh i think i couldn't i don't remember if they were using epes or, or foils but the foil is it, the lightest of the three and the epee uh it has a larger guard it's a it's a bit larger blade uh, but it's also a, a stabbing weapon yeah. But the saber is uh, different. The way you hold it, and the way um, your posture, everything is different. But the footwork is is the same with all three blades. Being in control of your timing. And now, and that's in the style you were taught. Is do you do dominant hand forward, or do you do like a more traditional stance? Uh, sorry, you're asking about the foot or a hand. Uh, both, I guess, because people always debate like you should have the lead hand for uh, your dominant hand forward and with your foot dominant foot forward, and then other people, depending on the style, will be like uh, weak hand forward, like a traditional orthodox stance. Uh, I yeah, I always had dominant foot forward and, yeah. and dominant hand forward as well. Um, but you you 
your uh, footwork would change uh, regularly. So timing is everything. It's almost like a piece of music when yeah. you're uh, in, in a, a flight and um, you can change your timing and therefore the expectations of your opponent by uh, uh, changing you know, what you're doing with your feet. So you had different ways of moving. You could step forward, you could hop forward, you could slide forward, or you could pass forward. And those four different ways of moving your feet would change in timing. And you could use that to either uh, confuse your enemy or to create an opportunity. Um, you can do the same thing with the blade as well, for instance, with the uh, foil or the epee, you could have a low guard so you look vulnerable. Yeah. They do. They, they uh, reach in for the opportunity at which point in time you can if you're good at what you do, you can move their head very quickly <laughs> while you're playing. So uh, vulnerabilities uh, 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 or perceived uh, vulnerability is sometimes an opportunity. Yeah. My only criticism of those, those styles is the like the French and the sort of Italian is is the theatrical nature that they've become, you know, in the movies, and and then when yes. I ta- when I actually talk to say uh, soldiers or or people who have done actual combat, you know, life or death, which you know I don't know too many people, but it's a very different. Yeah, so the, the stuff that you see in movies, the, the theatrical fencing, like I never did any of that. Even yeah. the, even the Olympic stuff that you see on TV. Yeah. Uh, that's. Uh, um, so the, the, there's different schools of fencing and obviously i'm a product of the classical french on bias uh but we were kind of seen as the snobs yeah uh, the classical purists and then the uh newer school of fencing is what you see in, in the olympics it's more kind of like racket ball or tennis they've got it's a sport right it's yeah. an athletic thing it's not really martial art you use all kinds of electrical apparatus and sensors and when someone's been hit we didn't do any of that in fact sometimes we wouldn't even wear uh, uh, a shirt on so yeah. you would remember the sting of the blade if yeah. you don't remember the sting of the blade then you won't remember to parry next time so there was using bell uh, blades or actual fully sharpened ones uh, sometimes we'd use actual sharp ones yeah. but if you care about your opponent who's your friend and training partner then you will learn to be careful with that blade without that fear of consequences. Yeah. You're, you're, I don't think your handling of the blade would be as careful. Yeah. Because <clears throat> you're not dependent on some uh, computer to uh, contact sensor to make a, an alert. They, that was not what was done in, in Germany and Italy, and, you know, the first world war. Like, <laughs> it's just not how uh, a real fight uh, plays out. Yeah. No, for sure. Like, uh, I remember actually one time uh, earlier in my Krav Maga, uh, whatever career experience, uh, we would use just like a regular kitchen knife that you eat with, like just a you know fork and knife kind of thing. Man, you get messed up even with the <laughs> if you're not yeah, you're pretty quickly. Yeah, and I remember going home uh, sometimes after training, and I'd still be bleeding. Like it's not deep wounds, but yeah. very very light flesh wounds where uh, uh, it stings like a bitch when you get hit with yeah. that foil will remember next time preparing but if you without that pain um, you won't uh, to use the language of the economist be incentivized to yeah. protect yourself better next time i wish we could have shock knives yeah well 
As far as I can tell, shock knives are not actually illegal, but for some reason the RCMP don't want it shipped in into the country and the company themselves are very hesitant to sell it to anyone in the country and it's just like one of those nonsensical, it doesn't make any sense. I think they've probably had like a behind the scenes conversation and I'm like, why don't you want shock knives? They're not powerful enough to kill anyone. Um, but even with those, you have to be careful because people start, they get used to the pain of the shock knife and then uh, they stop reacting if this is real. So usually, like, I mean, I'm when I teach knife defense, I, I only teach my advanced students knife fighting because it's not really self-defense at that point. But um, you have to, like, remind people, treat it, treat it as, as if it's real because your brain doesn't know the difference. And half the time in, say, a knife situation, people don't even know there's a knife until it's too late. So you just you yeah. need to train your body just to go. And if after you're done, you got stabbed, it's like, well, at least you didn't get killed, hopefully, right? Which is not yeah. the case, but you have to sort of ignore the fact that that's there and just train the motions and reactions to the movements rather than uh, there's a knife or no knife. It, training your motions is really, really important. People, uh, I think outside of, of uh, fencing, or actually all martial arts may not realize how uh, important that is. But um, when you get hit by the sting of the blade, uh, it's the same thing in boxing. Like the first time you get smacked, what goes to your head is you become angry. The animal instincts take over, right? The adrenaline starts flowing. And as soon as that happens, uh, uh, your judgment becomes impaired and yeah. uh, you're, you're, you become more vulnerable. And so part of uh, uh, learning to be uh, competent with a sword is learning to regulate your own emotions. And that carries over into life, into other things too. Um, in uh, dealing with uh, the adversaries or uh, adversarial situations, it's being able to regulate your own emotions. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, you said you learned it in the military from an officer? No, no, I, I, I uh, uh, my instructor, uh, Peter, uh, he taught me all of this and uh, we did foil epee saber and later 15th century uh, 200 Germanic broadsword. But the broadsword, you couldn't. We could do drill with, yeah. but you couldn't. You couldn't spar with it. Just, too hard to control, right? It's way too hard to control, and uh, um, it's it's very massive. It's it's basically a, a razor blade uh, baseball bat, right? yeah. and more massive than a baseball bat. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, like if you if you're not careful with that, you are going to kill somebody. Whereas the foil, you're going to get a minor flesh wound worst thing that could possibly happen if is you lose an eye but you're wearing a helmet so uh, you're just gonna go home bruised yeah that's enough makes sense uh what was i gonna say oh yeah because uh we didn't really talk too much about it yet but uh when and why did you decide to get into the the military uh well i have uh family that's been in the military in india senior officers in uh and uh i had family here in canada was one of which my uncle uh, uh, or sorry uh, my grandfather was one of the first tanks on the beach at, at Dieppe Ray, which was uh, a catastrophic yeah. disaster of, um, of military planning but he survived and he had one hell of a story to tell in his escape from the german pow camps and and uh, hiding in Europe and, and eventually uh, being 
yeah, it was one hell of an experience. For me, like my career in the military was, was anything but distinguished. Like I was just a regular reserve officer. I went, I did uh, a bunch of training. I uh, There were four courses that I had to do. There were two of which I had done, two more which I, I had not done, about another 20 more that I didn't need to do, but did do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you get to the point of diminishing returns where the military, it's not, like in the movies where it's super organized <laughs> hurry up and wait <laughs> yeah pretty much it's most of the time you're just sitting around there waiting for orders and if you're an officer then uh, you might be the one giving the orders but even you still have people above you as well who you answer to and, and um, you may not have um all the confidence that that uh, uh you need in your, your superiors your chain of command to really want to stick around for an extended period of time yeah. Oh, that makes sense. You know, it's uh, a couple of things there, like the myth that going into the military is always going to be some amazing, distinguished Hollywood style. Uh, it's like, no, you know, most people sit around and do nothing most of their military. And then occasionally you get like a Chris Kyle or a Jocko Willings or someone who's done done something really crazy in their in their in their career. Uh, or a Smokey Smith, if we want to go Canadian, but yeah, yeah well, Smokey Smith was he's from my regiment, yeah. originally uh, Seaforth Highlanders. Yeah, um, but I, I don't think I would have wanted to live his life. I mean, that, that guy must have seen he did see some <laughs> horrible things. And yeah. He was always drunk and uh, it, it great wartime was, soldier, bad peacetime soldier. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I mean, like there's a reason why he was always shit based and it was think about what he was seeing every yeah. day I mean, before he, he was given the reward by the queen. I think, I don't remember if it was the Victoria cross or not, but he hadn't broken any law, but, uh, the army, uh, locked him up. They, they put him in, uh, <laughs> in the stockade overnight. So he wouldn't go into town and get, yeah. uh, shit based and start a fight or whatever. Yeah. Um, to make sure he was in order uh for to get his award the next day and and um but he had a hard life uh, yeah. uh, a lot of those people did um yeah I, I don't envy them at all and i don't i think given the choice most of those people who uh were really distinguished soldiers in the war given the choice uh if it could have been avoided they they would have if yeah. they, if they were an opportunity for peace uh with the axes uh, they would have preferred to have seen that than uh, losing an arm or even if they survive a lot of their friends did not they were there with them when they got ripped to pieces i can't even i mean world war ii was not great i think as if i had to choose to be a soldier in world war ii or one i'd be like no i'm going to two because we always forget about how brutal world war one was for the soldiers it was it was worse Uh, some say the war is is the war that uh, we're supposed to never forgot it was supposed to be the war to end all wars yeah Um, that in it ended in 1918 and then in 39 it started up all over again uh, and here we are again and then there's korea and there's never really been a time when there wasn't a major conflict somewhere in the world yeah now i mean for me in my experience i i was mostly during peacetime you know i dealt with a lot of riots and i did mostly police work to be honest when i was there nothing major um, this is in the idf in the idf in israel right and uh, I remember going in, I, you know, reading some books about 
people who are in the special forces. I unfortunately couldn't get into the special forces for a variety of reasons. And, and like many people, my experience was not ideal. It did not go well for me the way I'd hoped, um, among other things, like mental health issues and other things. Um, but I remember during training, and the Israeli training is fucking hard. Like, it's really hard. And I am not an athletic person, right? I, I struggle. I ended up in the infantry. Um, and I, I struggled through the whole time. I never quit, but I, I was always in the back of the pack. And it, uh, I just remember thinking, it's like all these ideas I had about glory and, and this is awesome. I'm like, man, if I have to do this shit with someone shooting at me, it's going to be miserable. <laughs> like, yeah, you know. it, it, totally. I mean, like I grew up with firearms. It wasn't a big deal uh, on, uh, um, you know, hunting and, and uh, uh, shooting cans and stuff like that. But uh, for a lot of guys, the first time that they handle a weapon is in the army when it's yeah. issued to the, uh, the quartermaster. And uh, it, 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 it's something they get really excited about. And then after a while, you realize, no, shit, I've got to sleep with this thing. I've got to carry it. i got to run with it. I've got to, you know, it always, it's there in the shower. <clears throat> You're always carrying and cleaning it. it it's always jamming because our surface rifle is a piece of shit here in Canada. But <laughs> no shot it, there. Heavy, like, even a light rifle becomes very heavy. You've got to run with it over your head yeah. uh, for an extended period of time. It's not fun. But uh, to your your point, though, I, I think uh, it, yeah, a lot of those experiences are not uh, great. The special forces. Uh, I don't know too much about uh, the IDFs, uh, uh, special forces, but here in Canada, we have what's called. Uh, well, we had it's now disbanded. The uh, the first airborne regiment which was disbanded um, uh, in the uh, aftermath of the, the uh, Somalia affair but we also have uh, it, it, the, the detritus of that you know, uh, uh, begot uh, GTF2 which yeah. is Canada Special Forces today uh, I was actually approached uh, by them some years ago when I was still in the service uh, to join but I did not think at the time that I'd seen enough of inside yeah. of government of the army that I did not. I was prepared to. I, the, my main thing is I just did, I hated running with yeah. the rucksack. Like I just hated it. And yeah, I, yeah. I told them uh, 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 my contact there that I just don't want to be doing that again. Like you have to do that so much in the infantry. And uh, but, I feel uh, you. Yeah, <laughs> you have I, to I, really I, like the lifestyle in a western army to want to go into special it's got to be like your everything if you want to do special forces in in canada or the u.s or like uh tim kennedy like just that that guy loves that stuff you know uh, yeah Bray. And yeah then, i i, I it, it could be fun but you also see the very worst examples of yeah. the behavior of your own government yeah um, and that, that's what uh people don't realize is that the the special forces they're not just more uh, capable infantry soldiers with better training they're also used for uh, different purposes yeah. that, yeah. that things that uh, government should not be doing oh, yeah. trust more to do these things whether it's it's kidnappings it's murders uh, execution but Canada wasn't in Iraq what are you talking about <laughs> but, uh, I, I mean, a friend of mine was one of the very first soldiers who was there JTF too. Yeah. Um, you know, we we talked about this at some length. 
they were sent there with uh, very early on before the Americans uh, in their wisdom decided to invade Afghanistan. Yeah. And they, uh, his job was to report back and, and they did. And his colleagues said, there's bin Laden's not here. This it's just goats and sand, yeah. and rocks. There's no WMDs here. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, we all know now, but uh, it was obvious to the people who were there then. But there was a political machine that just kind of wanted yeah, to go forward. Like we don't really care, you know. Um, like the, the, the weapons inspector in the UK, Professor David something, who uh, was sent by Tony Blair to uh, report back on Saddam's WMDs. He did. He said, yeah, they had them, uh, you know, 10 years ago, but yeah. the program's all gone. Yeah. Um, so that's good. We don't need to invade. So they did anyways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you talk to most Canadians, they barely know we were there at all. I and mean, it's public oh, knowledge. The they just don't care. The you know? Canadian, uh, soldiers, Canadian officers in particular, they're deployed all over. Yeah. everywhere that the americans are uh, it's not unusual for at least like one uh canadian liaison officer to be there who is doing whatever they, they're they're embedded with them and uh they observe and report and um, you know we we train other special forces around the world the americans train here we train the pilots we manufacture some of their weapon systems um we, the difference is that here in Canada, Canadian military doesn't, we're, we don't really boast about uh, where it's gone or, or what it does. Um, the, the, especially in special forces, they can't celebrate their accomplishments because their accomplishments are not supposed to be known. Yeah. You know, I always joke like Canadian intelligence CSIS is like, you know, they're doing their jobs because we have no idea what they're doing, <laughs> you know, yeah. compared to the CIA. Every, Everyone knows what they're doing and they're not very good anymore. And they rely on British and Israeli intelligence to do anything nowadays. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the CSIS is, is, is busy. Uh, uh, the NSA is very busy as well. They have a lot of activities here in Canada, actually. As well. yeah. uh, they have operations right here in Vancouver. In fact, they, they tried to recruit me uh, some years ago. Uh, I didn't even know that they had people here in Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, they do everywhere. Yeah, it, it, I mean, all throughout the Five Eyes, they've got operations to in New Zealand, the UK, um, Canada, and uh, states. Yeah, pretty much. Now, it brings up a good, like, ethical, moral question about when should, like, when should we get involved with a, a dealing with war? Because that's like people really, really want to avoid unnecessary wars, but like. I would say it's pretty reasonable to say World War Two. we needed to do that, and that was not a question of morality, but it's like, how do you think you make that decision? Do we need to go in or do we not? Right, because for me as a Jew, the term like never again, I'm like, yeah, we didn't really keep that promise looking after, you know? Yeah, yeah it was a, a pretty nasty war, but um, behind all the, the bravado um, the historical revisionism that we are so familiar with today. Uh, there were a lot of different competing agendas that were going on there. It wasn't just as simple as, as persecuting people and 
people from around the world racing to, to liberate them. Uh, oh yeah, they didn't care about the Holocaust uh, camps. Like it's pretty well documented. They like they found there it, were a lot know. of very powerful financial interests, yeah. especially in the UK, uh, Great Britain at, at, at the time. Um, and my reading of history is that uh, the Brits did almost uh, there was a certain political elite, uh, an established class in that country that actually did everything they could to fan the flames war yeah. and I, I think part of it was they may have had uh, they, they benefited in some way through uh, these weapons procurement programs um, but I, I think that something that's not well known today is that uh, the, the uh, British aristocracy not all of them but that and a lot of the industrialists and financial interests in the UK Great Britain at the time were very sympathetic with Hitler. We don't talk yeah. about it today, but um, if you go and read the answer in, in uh, uh, the parliamentary debates, there were a lot of members of parliament that uh, uh, were quite enamored by him. And it wasn't just in Great Britain. It was in yeah. the United States. They had a Nazi party in Canada as well. You mean people don't like the Jews for reasons? <laughs> well, I, I mean, at the time, I don't think it, like, the Jews were, that was one thing that was happening in the war, but like, obviously, uh, Czechoslovakia and Poland being invaded also played a role too. And yeah. while there were Jews there, I mean, like they weren't the entire population. Uh, they certainly suffered. They weren't the only people, but no, there were definitely not, yeah. a lot of competing interests that were going on in, 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 uh, during that war. And uh, a lot of documents are still classified to this day, government yeah. documents. I wonder why. So, I mean, I think that's it's a, a pretty good picture of who, who Kip Warner is uh, overall. And uh, is there anything you want to say that we didn't discuss or, or specific to the... Obviously, we can't get in too detail about the, 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 the legal, legal pursuits, but uh, anything we haven't talked about that you want to cover... Because, I mean, for me, it's like I wanted to talk to you, one, because I really appreciate what you're doing. But also people like to know, like, who is this person that is doing this? Because often, you know, it's easy for special interests to smear people or, or to paint a picture that's not true publicly. Um, so anything you want to put out there, represent yourself or anything? I'm in your hands. You can ask me whatever you want. <laughs> I may not answer it, but I won't lie to you. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think... When I discuss like the, sort of like the legal stuff again, I, a lot of people just like give me deer in headlights look, and it's it, it can easy it can be easy for an individual to be like, oh, only a crazy person is going to sue the government, right? Because you know a lot of people, whether I like religion or not, I agree with their stance that this I feel like the religious specific stuff is really violating the char charter in many ways. Um, but a lot of people who are very anti-religion will like only the crazy, like the crazy anti-maskers and the crazy these, these. And I think it's really important to to make people realize that, oh, no, Kip is a really smart guy and really educated, isn't coming out of left left field here. Right. And, and I think that was one of my goals. Um, just to you're, you're just not some you're not a crazy person. You know what I mean? Because it's very easy people for people to make that assumption. I like to hope I'm not crazy. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, I mean, it was it, that was one of the challenges my chain of command had as well was that when I was in the army was they knew about some of my political activities, extracurricular activities, if you, if you, if you put it that way. Yeah. In particular, uh, my criticisms of, of American and Canadian foreign policy at the time, and I, yeah. I reserved those discussions, uh, those writings for my personal life. I never brought them into the army, but I put on my uniform, I kept my mouth shut, I saluted, did what I needed to do, uh, did my training, and, and I went home. But they, because of the internet, they can Google me and they know who's going on. What was so hard for them was not the fact that they thought I was crazy, but the fact that they knew I wasn't crazy, but yeah. I was believing these things. And that was what was, uh, uh, it tormented them, I think. Uh, it, it, I, I was cautioned uh, by my chain of command for, um, you know, I was born that this, these kinds of activities could have a, a detrimental impact on career advancement. Majesty's Play the game properly. Yeah. Why are you doing? Why are you thinking for yourself? <laughs> yeah, and I remember uh, 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 one of my superiors, who uh, I would say he, you know, he he um, he's a good guy. But he was confused, like most of them are. He, he, he drank Kool Aid, and I remember we were strolling around the base uh, one evening, and uh, so you know, I was I'm very concerned. I, I, seen that you've signed some petitions you know I, I read your letter that was uh, your, your open letter that was critical of Canadian American foreign policy and uh, you know just raised some alarm bells for us and so I had to notify my superiors that's not understand sir uh, you did what you need to do and well, what you felt you needed to do and uh, uh, and uh, I said to him so why why do we have this this regiment here well why is there an infantry regiment here and uh he said well you know it's to protect canadian values and i said okay so what are those <laughs> and you know I'm, I'm not being insubordinate like i i understand he's a captain and i'm the second lieutenant but he also knows that like uh, i'm not stupid yeah. and um, i'm going somewhere with this and and uh and eventually he, he i brought him to his senses like you know criticizing your government is is not unpatriotic it's actually the most patriotic thing that you can do because obviously if you don't care about uh your country then uh, you're not going to uh be part of uh, the checks and balances uh, of it and that's what the citizens do when they write and they they, they contemplate that's what an intellectual is an intellectual is not someone who's necessarily really smart it's someone who who uh, applies their their mind to thinking about uh, problems that afflict uh, uh, their communities that's what intellectual uh, originally was yeah. and so he eventually I remember we were strolling around problems the soldiers were, were uh, doing drill and, and uh, I remember I seen the lights go on he says yeah well, that's that's actually a really good point I didn't think about that what you were doing was political speech i didn't do it in uniform i never uh, uh, uh signed anything as second lieutenant warner so this is a private citizen the code of service discipline doesn't apply to anything that he's doing and he's like, yeah no that is a good point uh, you didn't do any like, there's no hate speech in there there's nothing like racist like i'm just criticizing canadian american foreign policy like you know it, it, is that a is that a cardinal sin? And so he came to his senses, but uh, 
his superior, who was the the adjutant at the time, is a complete asshole. Um, that guy was a clown for sure, and uh, he warned me. He said, "You know, this could be very detrimental for your career." I said, "Sir, yes, sir. I understand, sir." And then I just thought it was an idiot. Was, for him, like a lot of these guys, the army is a meal ticket for them. I hate to say it, and I know there's people who are going to be very offended hearing that, but not all the soldiers in the army are, are, are everything that they do is laudatory or that their motives are always pristine. A lot of these guys, they're not there for, for a so-called king and country or patriotic values. They're there because uh, they paint walls up in Whistler or something like that. And the degree that they got didn't get them in the places they wanted. And, and uh, uh, they don't feel like they have much control over the life. They don't really respect themselves. And, and, uh, when they show up at the armory in combat boots and a beret and, and uh, rank bestowed by Her Majesty, they feel like gods for a period of time and they feel like this meaning. And, and I, that got me thinking a lot about politics too, because it's like, you know, anytime you have any kind of arrangement like this where people are dependent on the, the, the uh, state for, uh, or any kind of government institution for uh, food, clothing, shelter, a system of values, social validation, financial security even their wardrobe um it, it creates a very uh, precarious situation for for their 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 citizens their fellow citizens because if the state calls on these people to do something that may be questionable uh they, they're economically encumbered uh, and they're they're less likely to say i don't think that's a good idea you know what if you want to to court martial me that that's fine i've got a career outside of here uh, i make plenty of money uh, doing what I do, and, and um, that's fine. I'll just uh, you can you can uh, give me an honorable discharge. And thankfully, I never had an honorable discharge. But if they had the opportunity to do that, they would have for sure. Uh, they thought I was insubordinate, but nobody ever said I was an incompetent soldier. I, you know, I, I I could shoot better than most of uh, my colleagues. Uh, uh, I had the highest graduating score of all the platoons in basic training, and. They just didn't like the way that uh, I thought. I could yeah. still function as a soldier. I could still need to do. I could do the things that they I needed to do. The technical skills of the soldier. They just didn't like the fact that I could think more about the big picture. Yeah, Maybe they think, shouldn't be going into Afghanistan. Maybe, you know, like. It's interesting. Like uh, again, that whole American thing is is even Canadians uh, who aren't military families often look. Globally, even militaries are like the U.S. military, and that's people's view of it. And you know, I didn't serve in the Canadian military. I almost did. Um, I decided not to for two reasons: was uh, I tried to get into when I was sixteen or seventeen into the entry program because some recruiter came to my school. And I was like, you know, I want to do that. I want to get into that, and I got bounced around. Like it's like you don't want me in the army. Every time I'd show up to the place where they told me to go, and it just like it left a bad taste in my mouth, and then. When I was like, okay, I want to do military service, uh, we were, uh, wind, uh, Canadians were winding up in Afghanistan and leaving. And I was like, I don't really want to be in a, quote, peacetime army because it just doesn't interest me. Um, and then when I came back from the military, I had a lot of friends in the Canadian, uh, the IDF when I came back, a lot of friends in the Canadian reserves. And uh, I started to see that in the Canadian reserves, it's like, what are you most of you clowns doing here? Like, this is like show up on Wednesdays, run around like fools for a bit, 
drink afterwards and most of you have no intention of deploying ever or it, it, it's just like it unfortunately um it has become sort of a social program yeah where a lot of people are there because they just they don't have anything else and to be fair not everyone is so fortunate there are a lot of people who join the military for reasons that more privileged people would think are absolutely absurd like why on earth would you join combat arms uh, where you could die yeah. uh, to, and, and I remember the answer I got from one, one uh, individual was, uh, well, I get to play a clarinet in, in the band, in the, the, the unit's band. And I said, yeah, but I mean, that band doesn't exist. Uh, like the unit is not a band. It's a, it's a combat unit. Uh, 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 I believe it was an artillery regiment yeah. uh, that has a band, but the, <laughs> the regiment doesn't exist to support the band. The band is just there when uh, you know they would march into the song or wherever, and, yeah. and, and they would play music. People were still getting uh, shredded to pieces, drowning in the mud, and so on. But they didn't think like that because this was a step up from where they were coming from. And, and you other people who joined because of the dental benefits, yeah. you know, like uh, what use of the dental benefits when you know a, a shell goes through your your skull that. Again, this is some, this is a step up from where they, they were coming from. So it really makes you count your blessings when you're among these people. Um, but for the officers as well, like traditionally it was the officers that uh, came from families of means. They originally, you know, the, the sons of the aristocracy. They were more educated and so on. But it's not really like that today. I mean, it. it the army is very much, uh, I mean, there's different regiments, obviously, and some are more blue collar regiments, some are more white collar regiments. The regiment I was in was very much supposed to, or traditionally it was a white collar regiment. It was from the families, the well-to-do families here in, in Vancouver who put their sons in there. Um, but it was still the same thing. I still, the same feeling that I got, that a lot of these people were there as a social program. They're like, yeah, some of the officers were doctors or lawyers or whatever, but, uh, Lawyers, they were coming from like bailing practices and so on. Like, I, there was nothing like that. I ever really got the feeling like, wow, that guy, I really respect him because he's putting down valuable work that pays a lot, and he's doing this for king and country. In fact, I, 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 I think that was one of the reasons why why my chain of command resented my my subordinates uh, respected my chain of command. Uh, really didn't like me because. I think it was like sometimes it was really stupid reasons like they knew that i had a career outside the army and i wasn't dependent on their validation or their money or anything i didn't really just pay anything in the army it's, it's, it's not a you know so uh I, that's when i a lot of, of my worldview with respect to the relationship between citizens and the state was congealed was just seeing the dangers of having a dependency yeah. uh, on the state no it's like i was uh, was a no, I'm not a fan of the federal NDP party, but they had some, whatever they had recently. And one of the talking points was let's disband the military. And uh, while I think that concept as a general thing is, is uh, insane, I do think, again, as someone who wasn't in the Canadian military, everything I've learned about it, it needs a restructuring. And I'm not even a fan of the reserve army as it's, as it's functioning right now. I'm like, if you want to be a soldier, go go be a soldier. It should be a full-time thing or, or, or nothing. I, I don't really like the Canadian structure. And as a taxpayer, I find it a complete waste of our money, the way they're choosing to spend it in the military. And I think, you know, there is a valid case to be made that we do need a, a military. 
not to get rid of the military, that's insanity, um, but to restructure it to be a bit more efficient for our needs, whether it be a defense army or, or whatever you want to do. But I'm like, I don't, I don't like the idea of it being a social program. Uh, if you're not going to, this you is have to be life, so careful right? about saying that because yeah. you you yeah. will offend people. It's oh, people think the, 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 the military is just a sacred institution yeah. that you can't criticize the soldiers. Like, yeah, I mean, but most of these people, in fact, they're not Smokey Smith. Like, they're yeah. you know they're not doing anything. Like, I, I know I've seen it firsthand. Um, they drink like camels. Uh, we had three bars just on our base. You know. Yeah. No. And, and I. I'm not worried about offending people because I've been doing it my whole life. So I've had to kind of come to terms with that reality. But, but my colleagues would make fun of me for, for uh, spending time doing map and compass while they were getting shit faced. And yeah. that. So I was just like, what do you know? And I think part of the reason why they're comfortable with, uh, with it was because outside of the walls of the armory, that the, the general public has no idea what's going on. They think yeah. that they're, well, most of the people don't even know that our base is a military base. They think that they make beer or something. Yeah. It's, it's the most rude. <laughs> yeah, but I just always thought, wow, I wonder what Canadians would think if they actually saw inside the, the daily life of uh, a, a regiment in Canada, yeah. just how much waste, mismanagement, and incompetence there is. Like, they couldn't do anything efficiently. Like, just having a... a, a you know, like a, they'd have a lunch or a barbecue or something. Just the amount of waste and garbage, right? So much money thrown away. Like, you know, like and the contractors would just milk them with yeah. for anything. So they they didn't make their own food. They have uh, contractors that would come and, and deliver food. It's the same thing in the states as well. Like it used to be that a soldier would uh, they'd have to do their own laundry and, and, and cooking or at least another soldier would be doing the cooking um but today you just don't see that in out in the field uh you know you'll have mres to eat but in the bases it's just the contractors uh will milk them because they know it's the taxpayer and um, these contracts probably uh, it's questionable whether there's a competitive bidding process on them so there's always the same people that see bring the same shitty food to the base and all the bases. It's something like the Israeli military. I remember when I was there, uh, uh, the budget was like $7 billion a year, the Israeli budget, and the Canadian budget was like $34 billion a year. And the, the, the result difference... Now, Canadian soldiers, mm-hmm. like combat soldiers, are known globally for being really good. They have a good reputation. Um, so nothing against that. Um, but you just look at what the Israeli military can do with a considerably smaller budget because they don't waste their time on that bullshit. Uh, they only, they, like, you know, uh, Israel is known for its technology, but all the, most of the budget goes to the Air Force and the tanks. Uh, yeah. and Israel has all of the technology in the world. They're a super advanced country. I didn't see any of it, right? <laughs> and and yeah. it's, they, they're very efficient with the, the budget, like an example was, I forgot what, what are the jets things, logging, like an F-16 or, or something, someone crashed the plane and, uh, you know, the American defense contractor said, oh, this is not, you, you're going to have to spend like, I don't know, 30, $40 million doing this, buying a new plane. And they said, hey, we have a uh, functional, the cockpit of the one we crashed is fine. And the body's just wrecked. We can we take it and put it in? Can we you just take it and put it into a working body? And they're like, no, 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 no you, it's impossible. Israel did it for a million dollars, right? Yeah. Because 
they just they were a lot of interesting things with planes i don't know if you know the story of the f-15 that uh, had a, an entire wing sheared off and they landed it uh i don't remember that but i'm i, I believe that yeah, it's, I'm sure. I, they're the only people in the world that ever managed to do an f-15 with only one wing and they yeah. landed it yeah, yeah there's the, the pilot i this is my i don't i can't prove this my speculation so you know you go into any military uh, and you do a, a test, right? They want to assess you, see your skill set. So my Hebrew is like, I barely speak it anymore. I learned it for the army and they do their assessment. Now, if you have fluent Hebrew, you get this extremely long test that has math and, and English and Hebrew and literacy and, and all physics and all this stuff. And then, uh, if you don't, so I did an interview in English and I did one of those pattern recognition things. And, and based on their scaling system, I scored uh, the, on the mental acuity, the highest score they give. It's, it doesn't mean until I just whatever they are scaling rate. Um, and then, you know, a friend of mine whose Hebrew is OK, he ended up getting into like one of the like a black ops. unit. He, he got into the best unit in the military, right? Like Israel's JTF2 unit and then got a phone call saying, hey, hey, come over here. And I'm just like, I made the, a connection. I'm like, so he didn't even do the full on test. And he basically got into better than best uh, special force unit. Well, what the fuck is that test for? And I'm like, they're looking for pilots. That's it. The, the Israeli pilots are literally the best of the best of that entire country, period, full stop. And yeah. well, and, like I said, they you know, landed the plane with only yeah. one wing. Yeah, even and, even uh, when I think it was McDonnell Douglas, whoever the, man, the the manufacturers for the aircraft, when the, the Israelis uh, called them and said what happened, the contractor didn't believe possible, it. He didn't yeah. design an aircraft like you can't. You, what do you mean? You, like you know, you, if you lost a wing, it must have been uh, 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 taxiing on the tarmac. Like you're not going to be in the air when that happens and survive. Yeah, yeah. You eject, but. No, they, they actually landed it. It, it. The wing sheared off in the air. The pilot didn't even know that uh, uh, this had happened until yeah. he looks over. Because he, he sees that there's fuel leaking. There's a, a vapor cloud coming out. And the cloud is thick enough that it's enshrouding what would be the area that the wing occupies. So he didn't even know that the, the wing was gone. <laughs> well, I think it's the mentality. Like, For example, you're talking about insubordination. Yeah. I told lieutenants uh, to fuck off. I saw a guy told the captain to fuck off, right? Uh, I, again, I was in the infantry. Special forces is a little bit different, but the whole concept of that discipline, it doesn't exist there. And and they get better results overall as a result. I think it's also because in Canada, like our military is predominantly blue-collar institution, um, the, there's portions of it in the Air Force and elsewhere that are, are different culturally, but in the IDF, everyone can get drafted. Like you doesn't, you these really people. Like I'll, I'll be honest with you, I have some serious reservations about the, their treatment of Palestinians. But the one thing I will give them is that <laughs> they are highly educated people, highly educated people, and you could graduate from MIT. It doesn't matter. Uh, you still have to do your, your time there in service. And so you've got all these people who do have career prospects outside of, of the army. And I think that's partially maybe where the insubordination is born out of this. They know they're not, they have something else out there and they're just waiting for their, their, their time. I would love to get into the Palestinian thing, but uh, that's another podcast. Um, but 
I think so. There's a book called Startup Nation regarding Israel. Uh, have you ever heard of it? No, well, I've studied a lot of, of the history uh, yeah. of the country. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it's a bit of a propagandist book, but it's it, because it's talking about how the military is responsible for all the creativeness. And it's like, eh, I don't buy that argument, but really what they're doing is they're taking the smartest people and the mo best quality people from high school and then you go into the military and they really try to push them to the special forces or the pilots or the higher end programs. And all they're really doing is taking the best and their brightest and giving them the confidence and skill set to go out and succeed. The other part is, is that the concept of no, you can't do that uh, doesn't really exist there. Now, whether that's because of you, they just don't like being told what to do. Uh, which is probably the case. It yeah, I think they manage resources much better, and resources includes people. So they can yeah, assess yeah. these are intelligent people. We should be having putting them to work on something. Right? The Canadian Army does not do that. I yeah. saw some highly intelligent people that uh, they, you know were were stock taking in the mass. I mean, stocking beer. Yeah, that yeah. was the most useful thing that they could have them do. So they don't manage resources well, and. Uh, they just don't care because it's just it's like a free lunch yeah yeah and uh, i they think go, they, they show up they drink they get uh uh um yeah, additional aids from circumstances for doing nothing sitting in a truck uh, waiting for orders um, so it, yeah i mean as you probably know it's hard to put me in, uh, in a box politically but it, it, depending on the issues sometimes i'm a libertarian sometimes i'm a uh, anarcho-capitalist sometimes you hear a feminist streak and the other times a uh, uh, conservative it depends totally on the issues like i said i grew up seeing all of it so i, I don't have any sacred cows but yeah. definitely the libertarian streak came out of me when uh, i saw just how the the army because uh, with the the army is is a symptom of it's it's uh the most overt expression of the worst attributes of government yeah are found yeah. in the in the army right yeah um so if you can observe and, and, and see that, then uh, you can have a, a appreciation for how a lot of the rest of government is dysfunctional, about how yeah. you can see incompetent people being promoted, how you can't really fire anybody. So it, it, just like in the civil service, you can move them around. So if you really want to get rid of someone who's totally incompetent. I know write, a few people uh, like that. Uh, <laughs> an, an amazing letter of recommendation to uh, a, a, another unit, the logistics unit or something like that. And that person who, they're not gone, they're just now responsible for supply chain for some other unit that needs something or is something important. So you no one ever gets fired in the army. And, and like I said, that's, ex, that, that's uh, that you see the scene in the rest of the civil service uh, in, in government here in Canada. And it, people love to bash China. I'm not a fan of communism, but you know what? The Chinese were the ones that figured out the civil service exams, the, the importance of them. The Chinese figured out like more than a thousand years ago that actually if you're in government, it's really important because millions of people are dependent on the decisions you make. So it makes sense that you should have uh, smart people rather than stupid people there um, for for. Uh, what should be obvious reason but that that philosophy didn't actually carry over like even though you see the it, 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 the ccp doing some pretty uh, uh malicious things to their own people people who are making these decisions are not stupid yeah. they're not stupid 
Uh, whereas here in Canada, it's unfortunate, but you see that a lot of people go into the government, as I said, as one in five people worked for government 20 years ago, um, that uh, it's it's okay to be look at it as like a social program. Yeah. Civil service exams were, were extremely difficult in, in China, and they did that uh, you know, a thousand years ago so they could select the smartest people to administer uh, the, the bureaucratic machinery of the state. Yeah, well, I think it gets something that when you fill a system with mediocre people, you get mediocre results. And I think that's kind of uh, where we are. Now, if I was just sort of sum up, something I think me and you agree on in our stance in life is we need to have honest conversations. And there is an extreme resistance, whether lobbyists or status quo thinking, you know, the COVID thing or the military thing is that nobody wants to have these honest conversations and i just don't people either you know when i try to do it with people people either get overwhelmed by how much knowledge they don't have and they're like i don't want to talk to you john or they come off as uh, you're being arrogant how dare you make me feel like i don't know anything or they just say well that's out of your control so it doesn't really matter and i'm just like what bugs me is hey we're complaining about the same thing if we don't have honest conversations and do something about it then the world is not going to get better and simply throwing temper tantrums on one side or ignoring it on the other or yelling at other people on the internet is not going to solve any of these problems yeah well, it, it is a serious issue. It's like, how do we deal with issues, topics of controversy in our society? And um, I think part of the problem is that uh, people learn about controversies through uh, yeah, through the media. Yeah. So, for example, like uh, government doesn't say that there's legitimate concerns about uh, some of these more controversial injections that are on the market now. I didn't know what I didn't say the vaccines because they're not vaccines. They don't meet the CDC's definition of vaccine. But they will use language that uh, is suggestive, acknowledging in a sort of very euphemistic way that there might be a controversy around it, but not really disclosing what the controversy yeah. is. So this is vaccine hesitancy, right? That's that's the euphemism of the century right there. It's not uh, um, uh, uh, critical science uh, of uh, um, the underlying theories yeah. that, uh, that uh, gave rise to this theories of vaccination but it, it's always a euphemism so focus less on the science and the facts what the actual essence of the controversy is focus more on the emotion the hesitancy so yeah. people are reluctant as if, as if like a, you know they're the child it's reluctant to eat their their Brussels sprouts or something like that it's good yeah. for them. just a, a, a lack of intellectual maturity necessary for them to fully appreciate what they need to eat so it's it, when people learn about these controversies through people who have an adversarial interest in acknowledging that they exist uh, understandably uh, their ability their capacity as a citizen to even contemplate a conversation uh, about the, uh, that controversy in a meaningful way with another uh, another citizen uh, becomes almost impossible let's what like a friend of mine uh, uh I raised some points recently about uh, how it was critical of the lockdown. He said, "Oh, you must be one of those QAnon guys." Yeah. Or in his mind, that because that what he understands, what the media's told him is that anyone who criticizes government, <clears throat> they must be a, a you know a disciple of, 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 
of, of Trump and they wear a MAGA hat. And uh, because he, he too, he's getting all this information from uh, uh, American news and yeah. corporate sources. You must so he thinks he's got of course. <laughs> and Fox, or, or, yeah, I mean, even things that he thinks are respectable, like uh, uh, the the CBC, and, and uh, which it was decades ago. But uh, you know, so it, like I said, the people they don't uh, have the tools necessary to deal with topics of controversy in our society. They don't, they don't, because there's so that they, they, our media obviously is not uh, a neutral set out into the world with a neutral fact-binding mandate to simply observe and report. They, it's very clear to even a, a not very sophisticated person that, that they have an agenda yeah. and someone is giving them their talking points. But a lot of people don't realize that even it, 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 it's supposedly educated people. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend of mine who's, uh, you know, unfortunately I have too many lawyer friends, and more than I do have engineers. Unfortunately, in the city, that's just how it works. Yeah. But uh, he's he believes everything that he sees on television. The government says something's true. He can acknowledge that yes, government makes mistakes. That there's some competent people, but there's not really any uh, 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 significant bad faith actors. So where there are, it's you know at a lower level uh, contract that was awarded uh, uh, improperly at a municipal level or something like that. But there would never be something more sinister at a federal level that there were certain external foreign influences for instance that might have infiltrated certain organizations it's interesting because the cbc used to report on this back in the, the decades ago and they, they did wonderful documentaries on the nsa's activities back in uh, 1979 yeah. and they're up it's just it's disappeared now and I read this book a long time ago called The Volunteer. It was actually a Canadian who ended up going to Israel, converting, serving the IDF, then serving in Mossad. And this is what was one of my like aha moments is he was talking about the art of spycraft. He's like, you just need to release 10 or 20 percent of bullshit and it confuses everyone. And and, it, you know, like I growing up in Canada with parents who didn't use firearms, my experience came in the military as we were talking and now I'm super pro firearm and I'm watching the current federal government's attack on firearms and the media playing interference and they're just lying about the statistics and the facts regarding this. And it's just like, you know, I, I didn't used to think the CBC was that bad. You know, you see a lot of these right wing guys, oh, CBC is garbage. And I was like, for a long time, I'm like, they're not as I mean, they're they're not 100 uh, percent unbiased. Uh, but they're not as bad as the America. But now with this gun stuff, I'm like, holy crap! They're not even trying to present a debate. They're just trying to remember, like, where does their funding come from? Yeah, for the CPC. And whenever they talk about uh, Iran or uh, uh, Russia or Syria, they always for like state media, state yeah. media. So, well, yeah. you, you never say media. that when you're talking about the BBC <laughs> or the CBC. Yeah. It's yeah. like, okay, you know, I have a friend who worked for Press TV, Iranian News. And, yeah. And I asked him, it was like, do they tell you what to? He's like, no, we're state funded, we're not state controlled. Like, yeah. if that's this bad enough, then like, why isn't the CBC like, why don't they refer to themselves as state funded media, right? They are the definition of state funded media. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what the C and CBC stands for is Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Yeah. So they get their funding from, from government and corporate interests as well. Um, and uh, uh, there, there's 
it's like Chomsky uh, uh, had said that sometimes one of the ways of giving people the illusion uh, of freedom is is to set very narrow parameters for acceptable opinion and then allow yeah. for lively uh, discourse within that. That's sort of what they do is is they get this sort of fake uh, 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 spectrum of opinion yeah. in there. Yeah. So they, they, when in any issue, there's always the correct issue, the, the correct side that they want you to take, and then the other side, uh, they may give it a, a, a head nod, and whoever they bring in to interview to advocate for that particular position is someone who's not really supposed to be taken seriously. Yeah. Um, there's somebody who doesn't have any credentials. They they look kind of silly. They're not particularly articulate, and um, at the person, not the argument, which is the opposite of what it should be, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, with the firearms issue, like I disagree with basically everybody. I'm, I'm, I'm solo on this. I, I think that people should have a right to bear arms. They should use them. They should train with them. I think you should teach your children how to use a firearm in the same way that you should learn to use a, a lot of people uh, this first aid. Like, I, I think these are useful skills yeah. uh, to use. But I don't think it's a solution to political or social problems. Yeah, the left sees. Uh, they argue that <clears throat> you'll have safer streets if you deprive uh, private ownership of firearms and uh, you'll have a greater degree of, of political freedom. And then uh, the right says that uh, it makes the same argument, but that if people, if there's a greater uh, uh, amount of private ownership of, of firearms, then there'll be a greater increase in political freedom. Because they both see this, this uh, correlation um, between uh, political freedom possession, private possession of firearms, but I don't think there actually is any universal uh, meaningful correlation. Like the, it's Switzerland, everyone's armed at the teeth. It, it, you, you can walk around in the, in the grocery store with a, a service rifle over your back. Uh, it's, people train with it and nobody, they have very low crime rate. People, most people would say they have a very high degree of political freedom. And then you go to Saudi Arabia, everyone's armed at the teeth and they have very low degree of political freedom. Yeah, uh, I think so it's, I mean, yeah. like uh, it will reduce crime, regardless of the political thing, because, it, it, you know, if predators or whatever the reason someone's doing a violent crime thinks the risk is too high, right? It, I, it just the evidence seems to consistently show that when people think that being violent may result in serious harm to them, they're less likely to do it. Now, beyond that, it's, you know, it depends on society, right? Um um, but I just don't like the misinformation regarding it, you know, in general from all, all sides. Yeah, I hear crazy people on that topic. Yeah, like, I, 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 like I, I don't think it's going to solve social and political problems. And, and, and so I think that, that letting people have them is not a bad thing. Taking them away from them is a bad thing. And in that sense, I, 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 I guess you could say I'm right wing. Uh, but I also don't think that, that them having them is going to uh, uh, improve uh, political, social, and economic life in the country simply because you have firearms. I, I think that the, the argument a lot of people make on the right is that um, they're afraid that the uh, tyrannical government taking over, this is part of the checks and balances. But I, I think that's absurd. Like I completely agree that governments are completely out of control. They are tyrannical. Uh, but I don't think that... Uh, owning uh, an SKS uh, under your bed is, is going to stop uh, institutions that have uh, nuclear weapons, gas, and so on. So I, I think 
I understand where they're coming from because these ideologies manifest at a time with the disparity between the common citizens' uh, uh, armaments that they were able to uh, acquire privately and those that standing armies <clears throat> had was not that different. You, a private citizen had a musket, uh, an infantryman had a musket, and that made sense. So yes, there was a, you could say that there was legitimate uh, uh, counterbalance to uh, 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 potential uh, tyranny, but I don't think that that would apply to, I don't think that the tools necessary to keep your government in check is, is having a, a, you know, a, a rifle or a pistol or a shotgun. Uh, I think that uh, the best uh, tools that we have is, as you hinted at earlier, was education, learning to be a good citizen. A good citizen is not the same as an obedient citizen. A good citizen is a critical thinker. Yeah, and you know, just, uh, I gotta get going soon, but it's like, you know, talking about the media and the good citizen, I'm like, I'm just talking about even Vancouver. I'm watching like uh, the Daily Hive, and, you know, Vancouver is awesome, and you. And they're just demonizing anyone who, you know, questions the status quo. And I just find it so offensive. And then you look at the comments section and just all the bandwagoners being like, yeah, like, yeah, you do, you tell them. And I'm like, God, man, nobody's thinking for themselves anymore. No, it, it, <laughs> and you also have to imagine, remember that a lot of the so-called independent uh, media is not independent. No. For uh, you may have seen there's recently there was a hatchet piece article that was uh, done on me and uh, it was the Georgia Strait. Yeah, they're all and, the same. Um, little small yeah, and, and they're saying about how like guys like us were we're all Holocaust deniers and we're anti-Semitic. There's no sources, no references to anything or quotes or anything from me or my organization, but they were just throwing little everything out, saying that you know <clears throat> we're all just crazy uh, cranks conspiracy theorists this article it was interesting because first i was wondering why would they they write that like i I know media does this but uh the georgia Strait used to be sort of this uh independent publication sort of left-leaning they 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 comment on arts and and theater and politics and you know it it was never a large publication but it was it was generally respected and it was you know you could pick it up anywhere and uh, it started to get dumber over time. Where it, yeah. You know, buy a condo, get in debt, be a hipster type thing. But yeah. there used to actually be some solid uh, 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 articles in there and political commentary. And it was a little bit more cerebral. Uh, so I was wondering, why would they write such a stupid article? Um, because uh, it's just, it's not referenced. Like it looks very hyperbolic. Like it's not, uh, anyone reading this can see that this, there's, Clearly, they're trying to paint someone a particular way, the language, everything. Um, so why would they do that? And it turns out that uh, unbeknownst to most people in the city, the Georgia Street was acquired uh, uh, fairly quietly. I mean, they did put out a news release, but I don't think most people read it uh, last year by uh, Media Center, Media Central Corp. Yeah. And I'd never heard of this institution before. This, I didn't even know what it was. Who the hell is, is Media Center for? So I remember doing some research on this. And this company basically just came out of nowhere. It yeah. came out of nowhere and acquired it. And now, and, and I did it. I saw an interview actually with the principal behind the company. And, and it raised more questions yep. uh, uh, than answers. And he said, Yeah, we just completed our financing round. We're in the process of acquiring this, this paper. And, and I thought, well, that's interesting, you know, like, uh, 
who who financed this and what who in their right mind would see a, a, a good business proposition acquiring a newspaper i don't think anyone in their right mind today thinks that buying a newspaper uh you're going to have a turnaround on it and the this the principles explanation was that you know this paper is, is is not doing well and there's another one also that's not doing well and we figure if we buy them both then they'll start working and then only an idiot would believe that but that's only if you think that what they're whoever it is that's acquiring these papers is uh, trying to run a viable business model you know any anyone that right now it's not what's going on. there's an agenda here and they're trying to influence it and, and uh, persuade public opinion it's, it's called social engineering yeah. so why on earth would you buy so I thought it was fascinating to see something yeah. like that right Jeff, here. So close to Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post, essentially, and they've become a mouthpiece for Jeff Bezos now and whatever he wants. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, this company just comes out of nowhere. The money comes out of nowhere and they just acquire a failing newspaper. To me, it's the writing's all over the world. This is probably... Uh, intelligence agency that's acquired. I mean, it's really not. I think, yeah, I got to wrap it up. I think a good way to sum it up is a quote from, uh, I think, Rush Hour 2 is, follow the rich white guy. (laughs) And you'll start to see that things are not always the same. But I just wanted to thank you um, for what you're doing because I just, I am in, like, I just don't have the mental faculties to be a lead on any big projects. I just get too angry. Um, so I really appreciate, uh, what you're doing and, uh, I really want to do this again, um, cause I want to do something to counter those hit pieces and who are you and what you're doing. Um, so well, for the most part, like the public support has been overwhelming, yeah. especially after that article was released. Uh, yeah, I mean, the comments on that article were, were not positive, uh, general public i think was quite infuriated yeah um and it, you know i didn't care whatever yeah as you shouldn't now uh if anyone wants to get a hold of you or contact you what's the best way uh they can email me my email address is kip at the vertigo.com so that's kip k-i-p it's in papa at the vertigo.com so a lot of people uh get the spelling wrong so yeah. So you and I are ex-military, we'll just do it phonetically. So that's Kilo India Papa at Tango Hotel Echo, Victor Echo Romeo, Tango India Golf, Oscar.com. And uh, last thing, do you still need donations on the GoFundMe? And if so, uh, what, what is the GoFundMe page for the, uh, the legal if battle? People, yes, if people want to donate, they can. We're all volunteers. No one here takes a salary. Uh, we have to pay our lawyer and we have other expenses, campaign expenses along the way. Uh, but none of us uh, benefit uh, personally in any way from it. We don't uh, receive a stipend, uh, an honorary, of nothing. Uh, we all have regular day jobs. And uh, so we have to balance this with those responsibilities. Uh, but right now we've got enough cash in the bank to do quite a substantial amount of the work ahead of us. But eventually we will need more. We will need more for expert witnesses, expert reports and uh, uh, promotional materials as well. Like we haven't really had to, we never put out a news release or anything. It just went viral after yeah. so, yeah, I think we have over 18,000 hits on, on uh, nice. our notice of civil claim. It just went all over social media. All right, well again, thank you for, for coming on as a guest and also thank you for uh, what you're doing. My pleasure, my friend. Yeah, absolutely.
listening to The Warrior's Day. The Warrior's Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions.